Hello and welcome to the PopBreak.com's official Oscars podcast, hosted by Marissa Carpico and Matt Taylor. Everyone. This is Marissa Carpico, the film editor at thepopbreak.com. I am here with our TV editor. Say hello, Matt. Hi, everyone. It's Matt Taylor. I should always say that. Um, there are yeah. thousands of Matts. There, there are so many. There's, I was at a conference today, and some man saw my name tag and was like, oh, my God, I have a nephew named Matt. And I wanted to say, like, you probably have a thousand nephews named Matt. Like, it is not a, it is not a rare name. <laughs> We've all got a nephew, a nephew named Matt, realistically. Honestly. Um, even me, who has no brothers or sisters. Um, Sorry, there's a mat for you. <laughs> there's always a mat. Um, but we're going to talk about, um, and the winner still is, uh, our past Oscar podcast. Um, and the year we're doing is 1941, which you will find out is the worst year of film maybe ever, and po- definitely the spar of this podcast. Um, the <laughs> <laughs> It's a rough year, everyone. I I apo- we apologize to you, but also to ourselves. Um, it is uh, the ceremony was actually almost canceled because for two <laughs> reasons, um, and they should have honestly. Um, but I have to stop joking because the reason that they were canceled is uh, Pearl Harbor happened um, in December seventh, nineteen forty one. Because as they do now, they they held the ceremony for nineteen forty one, the year after in nineteen forty two, in like you know February. Um, so. War had just broken out, and Carol Lombard on uh, January 16th, 1942, had died in a plane crash after selling warm blocks, which she was like one of the most beloved stars of Hollywood, both for just casual film watchers and in, in the industry. So it was a dark time, and they very nearly canceled it. Betty Davis, who was the new Academy president, um, tried to turn the event into basically a fundraiser. Um, where Rosalind Russell would be the host and, or would like plan it apparently. Uh, it's the way it's phrased in inside Oscar, the book we read, um, is that she wanted Rosalind Russell to plan it, I guess. Cause she's like the best at planning parties, which like, sure. I believe it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and wanted to turn it into a public event that like the pub, you know, people could just buy tickets. Normal people could buy tickets to, and the proceeds would go to, um, like the British war office basically. Uh, but then the Academy, the rest of the Academy members were like, or well, the, the board was like, are you fucking out of your mind, bitch? So they didn't do that. Um, but, uh, because of public pressure, they were going to like have a subdued thing, but then there was all this public pressure, blah, blah, blah. People were like, listen, we need them. We need some nice shit going on. So they put the banquet back on, but they, um, it was just like a, a stripped down dinner where women were told not to dress up and it was just going to be sort of like a very chill thing. Um, it was held at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles on February 26, 1942, which is also the, the hotel where I had my debut ball. Um, hosted by wow. Bob Hope. <laughs> it's a historical monument. Um, and then this is also the first year that the documentary had a – or the the – Academy had a documentary category, which I thought was fascinating. And also, I mean, it became more important as years went on because of the war stuff. Um, but the winner for this year is a notorious um, film for uh, possibly not being a deserving winner. Um, we'll talk about it. 
Uh, How Green Was My Valley, directed by John Ford. It was nominated for 10 awards and won five of those, including Best Picture. Um, it's based, based on Richard uh, Llewellyn's novel of the same name. And it opened on the last day of eligibility for, um, uh, like, for 1941. So because Zanuck wanted to keep it fresh in voters' minds, and that worked. Because um, it won a shitload of awards and and the big one, even though it is, it is a film certainly, but um, not a good one. It is. <laughs> um, it's definitely but why a movie. Talk about what it is, what it's about, Matt. A uh, quick synopsis, and and then your thoughts on it. Yeah. So <laughs> this movie, this, this is definitely a movie, and <laughs> it <laughs> it is based on the novel, like you said, by Richard Lewin. I, what I thought was interesting was that the the novel was published in 1939, and they like they must have just quickly turned around and been like, "We're making this into a movie," because I don't know. I just like you don't see that anymore. I feel like there's like such long waits between novels being published and movies if they get even turned into movies. They used so to do was, it much faster back then, for sure. Yeah, now it's like I don't know. Like, I feel like we're like five, like they're five years behind. Like we get. Mo- if they even come to the screen. I don't know. Random reflections on the state of the film industry today. But this movie follows the Morgan family, um, a Welsh mining family in a fictional village in South Wales. Apparently it's based on a real village that the author visited a lot as a kid where his grandfather lived. And it just sort of follows this family through various chapters of their life um over the course of a, I think a few years and there's ever like there's relationship drama there's like coming of age back to school type subplots there's labor unrest if you will yes and some like very dramatic mi- um mining incidents and everything like that and it, you know it follows their lives and it's funny because most of the narrative around the whole film today is just that it beats citizen kane and like that's the movie's legacy right now, which I think is kind of sad. Um, but I'm part of the problem because that's the only reason I watched this movie the first time I saw <laughs> it. I, I saw it before I, I decided to try to like watch all the Best Picture nominees. Mm-hmm. And like shortly after I watched Citizen Kane, like I don't remember the exact timeline, but like it was it was like I had seen Citizen Kane and had to spoil my thoughts on it and like really, really loved it. And then decided to watch this and was just like, how did it beat Citizen Kane? And like, I was hoping when I went back to rewatch it for this podcast, I would feel a little more differently. But that really was my main, not that it beat Citizen Kane so much as like a, this one. <laughs> like it's, I guess compared to some of the other films nominated, it's like leaps and bounds better but it is a it is a very um it's it's just like we were joking about it's a very plain movie to me i can see the appeal of it like there's that sort of coming of age the coming of age stories are always fascinating on some level i think and there are little moments here that i find very interesting not very interesting. I think I think very interesting is an overstatement, but there it's there are moments that that work. And um, but yeah, I just I think this movie is so like free of passion or life. Really, like it just feels like very much like this. Um, I've never read the book, but like a very by the numbers adaptation of a of a book. Like there's no real passion behind the film, and. It's all serviceable, but, you know, I, I cannot imagine watching this in another context than just, like, 
the historical aspect of it. Like, there's nothing. I, I put it in my letterbox review, and I was half joking, but I think it's true. It's like I can't believe I've watched this movie twice in my life, oh. and it's like I'm like I don't think I'll ever watch it again. <clears throat> if I ever do watch it again, I will question my choices. Yeah, and it's it's compared to some of the other movies we'll be talking about. I think it's fine, but it is very much like a one of the more pa- like forgettable, passable Best Picture nominees yeah. winners. I can't believe you. I mean, I knew you had seen it twice, but like, if I ever have to see it twice, I think I'll just be like, I don't think there's a lot of films I would resent more than this having to see it twice. Truly. <laughs> so this was your first time watching it. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, I'd heard about it. Um, I, full. I mean, I guess we can't really talk about it without sort of mentioning the Citizen Kane of it all. But, um, I was not a big fan of the Citizen Kane when I first saw it because I had heard so much about it, and I was also like. I was in high school, so I hadn't done any um, film research or, you know, like formal film training at that point, essentially. So mm-hmm. I think I, we can get into it later, but I think it was hard for me to appreciate much about it um, then. Because when you hear, oh, we'll talk about it. I don't want to dive into that now. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'd always heard about it as being this notorious winner of, you know, beating Citizen Kane. Um and I think it's we're going to have to talk about that context, especially when it comes to Citizen Kane, because this is a very political year when it comes to who won what and why and then mm-hmm. what happened afterwards, especially when it comes to Citizen Kane. So I think some of that might be our everyone else who wasn't living in 1941's ignorance about what was going on then, let's say, in the industry and like why why it wouldn't have been voted for at all. Mm-hmm. Um but beside all that, I mean, How Green my, Was My Valley was one of the early ones I watched for this year. So I I was like, I'm certain all of the films will be better than it. And then I was like, no, it's that's not no, that's not true. So <laughs> um, it's like you said, it's serviceable. It's I, I think you're right. The adaptation does feel pretty rote, even though I've never read the book. But something about it just feels like so going through the motions. It's all this like. I don't know, nostalgia bullshit that's not actually very interesting. I mean, the most interesting thing in it for me was seeing little Roddy McDowell at 13, mm-hmm. who, um, in case nobody knows who that is, he's uh, Dr. Cornelius in the um, <clears throat> um, Planet of the Apes films, which are beloved of, of mine. So, <laughs> like, I was just like, Roddy, is that you? And then I looked it up and I was like, oh, my God, it is. He's so cute. Because <laughs> um, he plays, like, a little, <laughs> little kid. Although when they send him into the mines, I think that's a weird choice um like because not like he grows he's still third he's like a 13 year old kid is a minor like um not with an o with an e and like (laughs) he like leaves school to become a minor and i'm like i don't i don't know about this like i don't know if we should idealize like because he's the character who's talking realistically about looking back on his past so it's like i don't know if he should be like proud of that choice because that's a bad choice like yeah, it was a product of that generation, I think. That's yeah, a- absolutely. And it's also this funny thing of, like, uh, it's, like, already collapsing within that generation. It's like, yeah, uh, hello, they're on strike because they die constantly and it's dangerous. And they don't even know about the black lung yet. Like, what are y'all doing? <laughs> it's so weird. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a slog. But it is, as we'll be talking about, less of a slog than some of them. Um or at least it's a slog in the way that it's not heinously outdated in a lot of the a way that yeah that's a true. lot of the other ones are because um, some of them I was like screaming. There is one that I I literally call horror a horror movie that we'll be talking about later. Um, 
but yeah, I don't know. It's just sort of like, it's boring as hell, but you, I get it on some level. Like, you know, it was perfectly the Xanic planet to be the last thing everybody watched. And John Ford is a very good director. Like, I get it. And 1941, like looking at these films, America's America was had some weird priorities. We were, a, we were weird. We were weird. <laughs> it was a weird time. <laughs> like, technically, Douglas Sirk is making films 20 years later for the most part about repression. But like, this has to be the era he's really talking about. Like. 1941, the 1940s, like the early 1940s seem awful. 1939 didn't seem this bad. I don't know what happened in the last three, like two years, but something went wrong. Uh, other than the war and Carol Lombard dying in that plane crash. Um, is there anything else you want to say about this movie before we move on? Because we've got a, we've got 10. Um, we I guess, have a lot. Yeah. Um, the one thing I can add is just like, it makes sense. I can, I can understand why they went for it, even if, like, I'm getting into the mindset where we're supposed to believe that all ten of these movies are good, um, mm-hmm. where, like, like I don't, I, this is going to sound like it's a bit, but I, I it's not, like, my grandpa would have, like, really loved this movie. He probably had seen it before, <laughs> like, um, but, like, he never, he loved old movies, he never brought this one up to me, so I don't know sure what his take is, but, um, he didn't have a letterbox, but, um, <laughs> I... Sorry. <laughs> But, um, love you, Grandpa. Um, But, um, like, this just feels like something that, like, I could see, like, my grandpa getting into. And I'm like, all right, he was probably, like, I don't know, like, in his teens when this came out, 20s. So, like, this probably, I don't know, like, I could see this being, like, the King's speech of its time, which we all look back now and we're like, what a bad movie. And we'll be talking about it again soon. I look back on it and I said, y'all are fucking nuts. Am I taking crazy pills? What is going on? But people loved it. People forget how much people were like going nuts for the king. So I'm like, they're like, I could imagine in the 40s people going nuts for this, the mines. I don't know. The valleys. So, you know, it's, it feels like a crowd pleaser in a way that like I watch it and I'm like, all right. But um, the, the part when he goes to school is, I find weirdly entertaining even though that like teacher's a psychopath like, yeah that teacher definitely like murdered other kids that shit's not not a not a comfortable watch yeah. when he like beats the shit out of Roddy mcdowell to the point where he's like permanently injured basically it's like mm, i yeah. don't know the shot of him walking back home i was like jesus look it's like it's brutal to watch yeah, yeah. The fuck like again he's looking back on this what what is <laughs> like <laughs> clearly the the existence was so fucked up that like he's like i remember that time that teacher beat the shit out of me and my friends my adult male minor friends <laughs> beat the shit out of like messed him up so he wouldn't do it again it's like what the fuck? in front of the whole class like the class is being so into it and i'm like i would have been mortified if i was a kid like i'd be like who are these strange men who came in and beat up our teacher even if our like- teacher Clear is this like to the time that everybody's like, "Yep, this is normal." God, I was we, I was born in the right decade. Let me tell you, like, Jesus. thank God. Ooh. I kept thinking that the whole time. I was like, I, I mean, even this late in history, I would have been burned as a witch. I, it's just too much. Um, <laughs> let's move on to. Uh, I think we're going to leave Citizen Kane for a little bit, um, yeah. maybe to last. But let's talk about Blossoms in the Dust. Um, also, a film. I can talk about it, I suppose. Um, do I want to? I don't know. It stars Career Garson 
as um I don't know. She's like a Southern lady. I'll, you know what's fascinating about a lot of these films that I feel like is not necessarily true in most years is that a lot of them are period pieces. Like, yeah, it's, it's particularly turn of the century period pieces. I think this one is supposed to be like late 18, 1800s, I believe. And then it goes into um, now. But, or not now. <laughs> Into the 1900s, LOL. Um, <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> okay. Um, and she's just, um, I don't know. She's a she's a society gal who's supposed to marry um, one man. And then she meets a guy at the bank um, who's who negs her. And then, of course, they get married because it's 1941. Um which is heinous, by the way. And uh, it's, oh, it's played, he's played by um, Walter Pigeon, who also is the stuck-up teacher in How Green Was My Valley. Um, I didn't that, make that connection. What? Yeah, isn't that crazy? <laughs> I know. It's, well, it's, it's that thing of, like, you know, it's the, one of those years where they're nominating so many things. It's, like, everybody's in 15 things because there's, like, 12 people in the industry <laughs> at this point still. Um, <laughs> but... <laughs> Uh, yeah, so they get married and then they move to Texas together because he's like some businessman out there uh, who he has. I think he has a like a wheat and flour business like F L O U R, but that's not the blossoms. I don't know where they tie in. Honestly, it's very confusing. <laughs> I, I mean, every once in a while they show that time is passing by like him giving her flowers on their anniversary, but that just seems too tenuous of a of a link. Um, <laughs> I mean, obviously. <laughs> We can't crack this mystery on this podcast. <laughs> still, still not going to crack that mystery. Um, so they have a kid, but then the kid dies very much like, um, you know, Bonnie Bell died in uh, in um, on a horse in uh, Gone with the Wind a couple years earlier. Um, and then uh, because that, that pregnancy is difficult, she can't have kids anymore. And in 1941s, that means she should just kill herself. She says at one point, why don't you just divorce me? I'm, I can't do any good for you. And I was like, oh, good. This is work 20 minutes in, <laughs> into this <laughs> hour and 40 minutes film. And I already want to jump into the street. Um, but it gets worse because in order to affirm or, you know, have a reason to live as a woman, she now becomes like basically the she starts running like an in-home orphanage basically where she just like picking up, you know, kids who get dropped off at the hospital or wherever, or the firehouse. Um, and then like pairing them with real parents. And then the state comes in and is like, hello, you don't have a license for this. What the hell's going on? She's like, <laughs> but the children, <laughs> I mean, this is true. And, like, and then they're like, no, you cannot do this. But then eventually she finds a way and it becomes this whole thing where eventually it, it does shift into something, which I, I mean, it is a good thing that like, her her cause celeb eventually becomes like um, illegitimacy laws are whack. Like scar, like basically calling a child illegitimate for the rest of their life just because you know they come out from a marriage out of wedlock or or anything like that is fucking bullshit. I mean, it's un-American. Is her point? She's like, all men are created equal, as she says in the big courtroom scene. Um, and it's true. Like, there's those little you know biddies who sort of come at her and are like. You know, but how will women know to stay like, you know, virgins or, you know, like not uh, not be loose? And I was like, all right, these are this is horrible. I'm now fully rooting for Greer Garson. So it at once like reinforces patriarchy and also is against it. But it was a wild film. And 
I don't know. Eventually she like, I think she gets a kid of her own. I don't remember. By that point, I was checked out emotionally and spiritually. Um, Matt, do you remember? And what are your thoughts on Blossoms in the Dust? I feel like I don't have to say mine. It's pretty clear in my synopsis. <laughs> I watched it a few weeks ago, but I do think she gets a kid of her own. Um, there's a whole arc with her and this like little boy who she adopts, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, but no, yeah. What? So, you know, I watched this movie with um going into it not knowing what it's about which is like i try to do that with some of the best picture nominees that like i had never heard of before because you can really discover some like gems i think by going in blind this one wasn't it um yeah <laughs> this was not a gem um it was yeah this is a blossom in the dust it was a fucking rock in the dust you left out my favorite plot thread from the movie in just that like in terms of what the fuck, where in the first 10 minutes, her sister gets engaged. Oh! But, yeah, but then learns that she herself was adopted um, and, like, gets shamed for it by her fiancé's parents, and she kills herself. It's like all, this is all within, like, two minutes of time. Like, it's like all this happens. And I was like, what the fuck is, I literally said out loud, I'm like, what the fuck is this movie? Yeah, (laughs) you're right. I was like, holy shit. And that's the thing that drives the whole narrative. I totally forgot about it because so much wild shit happens. Yeah, it's, so, you know, watching this movie, like, I'm sure everyone who listens to this podcast knows, like, America is not pretty great, not a great history. <laughs> and, um, you know, I always think it's like I know all about, like, the social norms that America was pretty bad about. And then you discover something new, like how horrible they were to orphan children in the in the 30s and 40s. And I was just like, wait, like, this is a, a real issue at the time? Like, that truly, I think, at least in the corners of America that I've been in, like, no one ta- like no one is, like, questioning the legitimacy of... Um, children anymore that are that are up for adoption for whatever. And reason. realistically, it's probably because of this. You know, the movement that this film is sort of chronicling, which is wild because this is not that long ago. I mean, we're not even a hundred years from this fucking film. Realistically, yeah, it's it's insane to watch, and it makes me wonder. Mainly, what I spent the movie wondering was like, what social issues from like is- social issue movies from our generation will like. An Oscar podcast 80 years from now, but you're looking back at it like, Jesus, they were thinking, they were like judging people about this. So I just, it's a, it's a wild movie. Um, I think it like, it has moments that are fine. It's always fine. Like for me, yeah. I never thought like it got particularly like uninteresting. And I mean, as much, like, as much, as for as much as this sort of thing could be interesting, like the minute that her son is like, I'm going to go outside and sled. I'd, let's just like, Oh, well he's going to die. Like, yeah. it's like, it's everything's yeah, very telegraphed. It's very, um, little hokey, but like, you know, she's really great in it. And it's sort of wild. It's almost worth watching just for how wild it is. Like, it's just yeah. like, it's, it's one, like out of all the movies you watched this year, it's the one that made me like go like what the fuck the most. So and we watched a literal Hitchcock movie for this, and it was just like <laughs> and in comparison I, to this seems pretty normal. Yeah, I was just like, where where is this going the whole time? What a what a weird movie. <laughs> it's a whole journey. Every 10 minutes I would look at the clock and be like, this movie is an hour and 40. It goes through it's like truly in terms of the scale of the story, it's like giant or which it's which it sort of has a lot, you know what I mean? Yeah. Or like Gone with the Wind, but it doesn't. And 
a third of the time of both of those, which is fucking wild to me. I, I just like, I don't know. It's the weirdest movie I've ever seen. I didn't like it, but I didn't, at least it's sort of like fun in its madness in the way that like yeah. a lot of the other ones are like so regressive that they are unpleasant to watch. Yes, I agree. It's, it has, it, it's entertaining in its own weird way. Like I, like my brother didn't watch the whole thing with me, but he was in and out of the room and like, would just be like, what the fuck is happening? And that was like very entertaining in its own right. <laughs> I think it's, oh, it is this one though. I, I realized it a little bit in only because I had watched um, some of the Val Luton stuff that's on Criterion. But the woman who plays Cleo, Teresa Harris, who's a, like a like a black maid essentially in it, um, they have her in basically blackface. Oh, she, yes. Okay. I thought so. I put like I... I didn't get to look it up. Yes, yeah. that was. I, I only know. I mean, I knew noticed, but I was like, I literally just saw this woman. They've darkened her skin, which is just the the cherry on top of horrors of this film. It's a nightmare, and again, not the worst film in this bunch, truly. So, no. <laughs> just <laughs> really get ready for what's coming, everyone. Um, do you want to anything else you want to say about Blossoms before we move on to every other horror that we have to talk about? No, just keep let's keep trucking along. <laughs> um, why don't we do a sort of a, a, a one that's just it's not terrifying? Um, <laughs> here comes Mr. Jordan. Um, it's a an adaptation of the play Heaven Can Wait, which has been a- adapted a million times. I mean, there is a movie called Heaven Can Wait. Um, there's Matter of Life and Death, sort of, which you and I both like um, from Powell and yeah. But this is adapted from the original play by the original writer, um, but it won original screenplay because that play was unproduced at the time, which is the strangest thing I've ever heard, frankly. Um, Isn't that what the King's Speech did as well? Oh, you know, you might be right. You might I be think right. I think that's what happened with the King's Speech, which is weird Oscar rules because with, that's not the same rule with song. Like song, it's like if it's written, it's like it's for whatever movie was written for, even though it never gets made. It's just yeah. like... Well, they didn't even have that with the song. There was big controversy with the song winner this year uh, because it came out a year before, was written for something else, essentially. Or, like, just came out as a single, essentially, and then was slapped into a movie, but they were like, mm, let's give it the Oscar. Um, but, yeah, it's... I think they were just looser on that then. You know, They've only had a supporting actor category for, like, five years at this point. What do you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's a wild they're, getting, they're figuring things out. Russell and Russell almost... Like put on the Oscars. Who knows what's going on? Uh, I want to know what that would have been like so bad. I just keep thinking about that. Like I, I read that, and I, I mean, that's why we started recording late because I passed out for about fifteen minutes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, why don't you give a little summary of uh, "Here Comes Mr. Jordan" in case somebody hasn't seen it, heaven can wait. Or um, the Chris Rock version of it. I think it's called "Down to Earth." I don't uh, remember. Something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's the basic. It's your basic coming back from coming back from heaven story. Um, uh, <laughs> um, Robert Montgomery plays a boxer who has an untimely death in that he is called to heaven before his time. It was like a clerical that error. A plane for, crash. That's so triggering. Triggering for like everyone who knew Carol Lombard. That's horrible. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> yikes. Um, also, that scene. I like. I like this movie, but that scene is just like I'm like, what is going on? Like, it's a very odd moment. It's but, but yeah, he gets called to heaven before his time. It's a clerical error. They all feel very bad, but he can't return to his old body. Um, I think because he was cremated. I don't remember for sure. He was cremated. I, yeah. Yes. Okay. 
And um, so he gets to take over a new life of someone who had just been killed um, by his by his like wife, I think. Um, yeah. And um, he gets to take over that body of this rich man, and suddenly he finds himself like trying to figure out how to get back into boxing, to woo a love interest, and all this other like hijinksy stuff. And um, I had never seen this movie before. I have seen um, Heaven Can Wait, the the Beatty version. It's Warren Beatty, right? Yes. Yeah, I actually haven't seen that, which is shocking given how I feel about Warren Beatty. I saw it a few years ago. I think I was in college, and I remember being somewhat indifferent towards it. And mm-hmm. I kind of went in with very low expectations for this, for this movie. And maybe that helped because I found it very charming. Like, I was just like... It's it's very much like that 1940s sense of humor of like slapsticky and you can see like you can literally see the jokes coming from like a mile away. It's very yeah. much like it's very by the numbers, but I found like something so wholesome and fun about it. I think like Robert Montgomery is not exactly giving like this complex performance, but he's very much game for the tone and he really makes it work. He made it work for me and I think it, like it runs into some problems at the end where you know, it works It works really well when it's just like, yeah, it's heaven. It's a clerical error. You're going to get take over this body. Okay, cool. And then at the end, it gets, like, a little too much, like, with mythology making and, yes. like, yeah. rules. And I kind of got taken out of it. But I still found it really charming. And it's only 94 minutes. And I think enough of it works where it's, it's worth the watch, even if you're not particularly interested in it. Um, you know, doing what we're doing and watching all these Oscar movies, like I think it kind of stands in its own as like a, as like an interesting comedy. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I watched it very early in the um, batch, so I think if I had watched it later, I would have been grateful that it was good um, <laughs> and like coherent and really not that dangerous. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> but um, I watched it too early and, and I found it like, and I've seen a lot of the, I mean, I've seen a lot of the other adaptations, not the Warren Beatty one for some reason, but like, um, I don't know. I, it just didn't, I didn't love it, but I, I really found Robert Montgomery deeply and unforgivably annoying as Joe Pendleton. Like Joe Pendleton seemed like the worst person in the world. Um, <laughs> he deserved to die. No one was missing him. Um, like in his dumb saxophone is so annoying and I don't know, he, the, the performance is a little too much for me. And like, he says too many of the jokes, too many of the same jokes over and over again to where it was like, all right, this is not charming. This is just someone hit him with another plane. Like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> um, but there are things to enjoy in it. I think Claude Rains and Edward Everett Horton as the like um, angels essentially having to like deal with the clerical error are fantastic. Like Claude Rains is really fun. It's just sort of like. Uh, you know, a very subdued, like, head angel, essentially just being like, oh, you know, can't you fix it? Like, just, I don't know. He's great. They're so good. They're, they are both so excellent. It's wild yeah. that they were not nominated and someone else was for, from this movie. <laughs> Girl, we 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 have to talk <laughs> about it. Um, but you're right. The ending is, like, so wild. And I think the thing that most of the other adaptations of the same sort of storyline um like make them make fix the mistake the mistake here that in of, of like getting too involved in mythology and like sort of erasing the the meaning of the romance and all that by that final you know twist or whatever mm-hmm. you want. um although the plot machinations are you know fun it's just not a great film and it's it's decently made but not necessarily spectacular you know i think it's just pretty serviceable as well um 
But again, because it is not a delivery system for a horrible ideology, it's fine. You know, it's all it <laughs> Yeah, it's not actively problematic. But yeah, it's the best you can hold for in 1941, honestly. Um, let's do... Oh, um, hmm, hard to say. We're running uh, out of non-problematic ones. We're I know, we're, we, <laughs> we really are. I just don't know which live wire I want to step in next. Um, why don't we do the little foxes? Um, sounds good, sounds good. Yeah, why not? Uh, it's Betty Davis. Well, why don't you talk about it? It's Betty Davis's feature. Yes, it is a, let me get the, the, um, letterbox open give me one minute um it is a william wyler film yes based on a stage play from by lillian hellman who adapted the play herself and it follows this um matriarch in the deep south i don't even know if she technically be a matriarch i don't know but um yeah, she's a little young yeah um it's hard to Re- say regina regina giddens who is this who's basically trying to manipulate her way into control over her family's, um, their, what is their, what, what, what is the industry they're in? You just watched it. I'm, I am blank, totally blanking on what industry they're in. No, it's fine. Um, it's hard to say. It is, I believe it's an, <laughs> <laughs> it's an old cotton mill, I think. Um, but I think they want to use it for something different. I, I don't, I literally watched this less than 24 hours ago, everyone. Um, but yeah, she wants basically she wants to do this cotton mill thing. They have an investor from Chicago who's going to help them uh, split the money and and do the make this new business. Um, and then it's just about all the machinations of her trying to like secure a future for herself and her daughter and like get the fuck away from her boorish or her boring dying husband. Mm. Um, throwing a lot of opinions into this <laughs> these synopses. <laughs> I have very little time for most of the film in this in this year um and yeah that's uh, and then she's got a daughter who uh you know is a good girl so she she's not a you know a, a greedy harpy like betty davis's character is um women cannot have ambition or anything any desire other than to have children and marriage in these films um so that's why betty davis is a villain apparently um anything else you want to add there <laughs> You got the plot covered, Marissa. Yeah. <laughs> um, should we talk about our thoughts on the? Do you want to go? Do you want to go off some more? No, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah. So I watched this movie for the first time in 2016 because at the time in 2016, Cynthia Nixon and Ooh. Laura Linney were doing it on Broadway. Okay. Um, oh they were like, God, swi- right? Yeah, they were switching on and off parts. Even though it's funny because I was like, like, what's the other part that they're switching off on? Like, there's really only one great part for a woman in this. Not in, like, I don't think either of them are playing Teresa Wright's character, the daughter. Maybe they were. That'd be kind of interesting. I hope not, because one yeah. is the daughter. What? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know who, like, what part they were switching off on. But um, I really wanted to go see it. Spoiler alert, did not get to see it. But um, I watched the movie to prepare for um seeing it and um i enjoyed it a lot at the i enjoyed it a lot and um you know it's sort of in a vacuum works as like this very stereotypical um gay gay like movie basically yeah, no, just, i mean like, that's yeah, yeah it, it's, it's like a it's a fun camp movie in the sense of like um 
you know, Betty Davis being like literally it's like it's the most Betty Davis performance, uh, maybe second to All About Eve of just like her like <laughs> um, just like standing in corners of rooms and monologuing and looking really pissed off while doing it and like sw- swirling drinks in a in like a manipulative fashion. And it's fun. And in like in that popcorn sort of way and yeah. watching it for the second time for this podcast. um you know, I still got that entertainment out of it. I do think, you know, a lot has changed in 2016 <laughs> watching this. And, um, like, you know, it's hard not to see that lens of it, like what you're mentioning um, about how, like, you know, on one level, I can enjoy it as this thing of like, oh, like, she's she's a bad bitch and everything. Like, she's yeah, just like, 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 you know, drag her kind of thing. But yeah. It's, yes. You know. But the movie's intention really does seem to be like a, isn't she like uh like her last the last shot of her like looking at the window is like such like a, a moment of just like oh like you're supposed to think she's this terrible person and I never really did like not more terrible than like any sort of like other theatrical character like the movie feels so far removed from the real world it's so heightened that um I it's like it's like I can't it's upsetting to think how they thought they were making this deeper meaning with it because I just don't quite see that. Um, And I will just say purely on a technical level, what stuck out to me this time. And apparently my 2016 self as well, if you look at my letterbox reviews, just like in terms of these like stage adaptations to film, like it, it really does feel very static and stagey. Like they don't really do anything with it. I mean, I, I think you really have to wait until Mike Nichols with Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf to have like a cinematic adaptation of a stage play, unless I'm blanking out on something. But like this one, I thought particularly felt very, very, very stagey and just like as if you just filmed a Broadway production of it, which is, you know, um, fine, but not particularly fun for like a film podcast yeah i will there was there is one i think and it stands out because the rest of it is so sort of stagey and and yeah i I, have stilted or at least um i don't know so so stodgy i suppose but um is the scene when uh her husband is having some whatever attack he's sick of you know they never it's Mm -hmm. just one of those movie diseases but like he's sick and he's like he runs out of his medicine and he's like oh i need the medicine and uh and he has to sort of stumble upstairs and spoiler alert he's he's like gonna die if he doesn't get the 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 medicine and he's and the only other person in the room is betty davis who's just like legit declared that she hates him (laughs) um (laughs) and and you stay on her she's sort of like lounging on this couch as the husband sort of stumbles around in the background, you see him sort of blurry, like trying to crawl up the stairs. And I was like, this is fucking, this is drag. Like, this is absolutely yeah. fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is amazing. I, I wish someone could do this on snatch game and make it make any sense because I don't think you can, but like, it was so fabulous. I was like, this is the best part of the movie. Like it almost, it's so good. It almost turned it around on me. Cause I was like, mm-hmm. it was, Oh, it's so brilliant. And like, I mean, truly for me, it's like the biggest villain of the thing is Richard Carlson as the like young, you know, journalist just nagging Teresa Wright into marrying him. It's like it's such a shit fucking movie in terms of like, I mean, it you sort of hinted at it before, but it's like it's the you and I have had to in the last couple of years uninternalize the misogyny that is deeply internalized in this in this yes. narrative, essentially. Um 
Yeah, I don't know. There is one other great role in it I'm, that which we'll have to talk about because it's um, uh, was nominated for supporting actress. But Patricia Collins is—I I don't know if I, actually that's how you pronounce her name. That, that's how I'm going for it. Um, is is quite good in this, and, and everybody's very good in it. Like the performances are strong. I just—I don't know the the worldview of the film is so f- skewed in a way that I could n- never really be a part of that mm. i just was like this they're all send them all home like they're all done to me <laughs> I, I don't like anyone <laughs> in this um but yeah i don't know it's a lot of these i think uh, more than any other year this these are films that have shown their age and like in ways that are mm-hmm. unbelievable just unbelievable uh any last thoughts on on foxes before we move on um you know like you said richard richard carlson's character pretty terrible as a human being but you know he cute so i do kind of get it Teresa. right i had to look him up because i was like he hot who is that and then i was like oh i've seen you in many things just older you know yeah and i had to like i was on imdb looking to make sure i'm like talking about the right one i'm like god there's so many pictures of him being old (laughs) like Mm -hmm. but no he he cute so i'm like i get it Teresa. yeah i mean you can't he i get it you know she's young she's supposed to be like fucking 16 or whatever so like at 16, I also would have thought that guy was hot. What do I, you know, 16 year old girls, we don't, we don't know. We're just, we're just, we're just trying to get through. <laughs> and I will say, um, Teresa writes pretty good, I think. Um, I, yeah. she, she just has like the 40s is just her decade of like playing the troubled younger, younger person <laughs> in the family. <laughs> um, but she was, she was good. Yeah, no, she's. I really do think everyone in it is good for what they're given. Just mm-hmm. what they're given is a, is a disaster. Um, I think we should maybe talk about. Uh, ooh, let's do suspicion, and then we'll talk about a, a related film. Um, suspicion. Um, Alfred Hitchcock, based on Francis Eel before the, um, for the start. Um, uh, it's. It's a well. You want? I keep stealing these from you. So why don't you actually <laughs> do, do, the, do the synopsis for this one? Yes, it is about a wealthy but sheltered woman, played by jo- Joan Fontaine, who is swept into this whirlwind marriage with, with a very rich um, man, John, um, played by Cary Grant, and they have this like whirlwind romance that I again I'm just like I'm like girl like really but um but it works for her i guess and the romances um, in these films they move so fast <laughs> but you know i mean like whatever whatever works i guess i don't know and then after they get married she starts to suspect that she's like the red flags just start popping up and she realizes he might not be as rich as he as she thought and he may um <laughs> actually be like murdering people in order to maintain his wealth and everything not, not and, just people wives <laughs> lonely women (laughs) including maybe her and um and yeah and this movie's good (laughs) like i'm just gonna like there's there's no way around it um especially in this year but um i watched it for the first time a few summers ago i went on like a whole hitchcock kick which i think i mentioned on this podcast before but i don't remember and um I watched this, and I remember watching it amidst a bunch of other Hitchcock movies. I remember thinking, like, oh, this was just okay. Um, but, like, watching it removed from the, like, having to const- constantly rank in your head, like, the different Hitchcock films, and then, especially up against these movies, it's good. <laughs> and, um, 
you know, just like it's not quite as like that. Like I mentioned before on this podcast, like I like the weird kinky Hitchcock stuff, like when he gets like really ingrained into like just weird fetish shit. And like I don't think this one gets quite weird enough. Like I would have liked to have seen it get a little more just like I like you never quite feel the sexual tension between the two of them, which I think is like a minor problem. I never buy that they'd be into each other and you just kinda have to accept it in order to accept the premise of the film. That's but a very uh, good point. Because there is something distant about like he's good at like walking a line of like, is he a sociopath or is he just like bumbling and sort of an embarrassment, but just not a murderer. Yeah. And, and she does very well, but you're right. I don't know if we, you ever really buy that. They want to like, fuck. And it's strange because his movies are usually so horny. <laughs> like, yeah. it's like, it's funny, but weirdly, like, I do think the movie works for like long stretches of time. There are some moments that are like, so like well executed. There's a great scene of her playing. I don't know if it actually is Scrabble because I don't know when Scrabble first came mm-hmm. around, but like some sort of word game. And let me tell you, like between that and Rosemary's Baby, every horror movie should have a scene where someone is playing Scrabble <laughs> because it is always it always works. It is always a good a good moment. <laughs> um, and my one complaint, honestly, is that I think the ending is so fucking abrupt like it's to yeah. the point where i won't spoil it because i think the hitchcock, hitchcock movies are accessible enough where like people would actually seek them out even if they don't particularly watch typically watch old movies but um like i absolutely don't believe that what we learn at the end is factual and i'm like like it's like it's so abrupt and again they don't have the chemistry where i'm like no <laughs> like it's like like her gut instincts correct but um uh, great movie though I really do like it quite a bit yeah it gets I mean the way I when I was watching it I I, I didn't yeah I, I, like like you said earlier it's like I try to go to an end of these to just sort of like experience and I've seen a lot of Hitchcock's films but I haven't seen I hadn't seen this one and it started like a rom-com and I was like mm, this is fun like cute and then I was like oh this is getting very dark and then the ending is suit there's that element that's really dark to it and I was like Jesus Christ <laughs> like <laughs> chill out <laughs> like, and, and this was early in the watching so i was like this is fine but i'm sure there's other better stuff but this looks like a diamond in the rough i mean compared to the rest of this other shit the rest of it it's it's really good i mean really fun and like the music is really smart because it, it it sort of adds to that rom-com thing where, like, mm. at first it's, so like, upbeat and, um, like, another film that we watched for this, like, per- Petty Serenade in a way, which is, like, you know, oh, the 1941, it's great. Uh, people are happy. They, look at how attractive they are. Wonderful that they found each other. Um, and then it just gets darker and darker. And it's, like, gaslight, but it, like, you know constantly but she's aware that she's possibly being manipulated and like constantly like re reanalyzing everything she knows about this person she seems to love and like even though they don't have any chemistry it's like or a, not a ton of chemistry it's like still like you get it it's Cary Grant look at him he's fucking beautiful um but the it's also really good filmmaking I mean you know that's expected when it comes to Hitchcock but the, Hitchcock but there's that scene when he when she is sort of having like a revelation and there's all that there's like a there must be a there's in the space she's like in the foyer of their house and there's must be like a, a window on the roof ceiling or whatever that like all this light is coming down and she looks like she's caged it's so fucking good mm-hmm. um like it's just really well made and a lot of pulpy fun but also like 
because it's Hitchcock and it's just smart, you know? Um, and a lot of fun. I quite liked it. Uh, definitely one of the better ones in this, this sack of shit year. Um, <laughs> we do not like this year, people, if you haven't figured it out. I can't tell. Um, <laughs> did we contemplate ending the podcast? Yes. But... <laughs> yeah, this is the end of the podcast. We, we've talked about our final season, which is years away. But we have a we're sort of basing it on best and worst years. And if we had known better, this would this would be in that last year because this is shit. Um, (laughs) Anything else you want to say about this one before we move on? Um, It weirdly reminded me of a couple I know in real life, which is minus the killing. But the rest of it, I was like, I was like, oh, wow. Like, you know, relationship problems haven't really changed in the past um, 50, 60 years. Wow. Subtweet. I hope they're not listening. They definitely Uh, are not. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Um, Now let's go to the um, Joan Fontaine's beloved sister uh, uh, in Hold Back the Dawn, opposite Charles Boyer. Um, I guess I can talk about this one. This is essentially not a very different movie, except it is told from uh, the the man's perspective, Charles Boyer. Boyer's character. Um, this is like who was also in Gaslight, correct? Uh, I think so. Double yeah. checking right now. Yeah, uh, I, I he's he's good at playing a devious piece of shit. Basically. He is. Yes, yes, he is. Yeah. Um, in this one, he is like a Romanian. Uh, it's it's funny that we're doing this after the English Patient as well. <laughs> he's like in a Romanian. Um, uh, dancer essentially they never i mean it's he's kind of a gadabout i suppose um who wants to immigrate to america uh, since war has started in in europe by this point um but he can't get straight into america because they're the quotient the quota for romanian immigrants is like very very small and he'd have to wait like six years and he's like no not doing that so he goes to mexico to wait excuse me um but then realizes like now he's trapped in mexico and still has to wait that long but this ex-dancer friend of his um, arrives, just happens to arrive around the same time. And he's like, holy shit, I haven't seen you in forever. And she's like, oh, I've been living in um, America. And she, he's like, wait, how did you get that that quota? Like, kept, get past the quota thing. She's not Romanian, but she's, you know, still had to get past the quota. And he's like, I just saw you like 20 minutes ago. Um, and she's like, oh, I just married some guy and then like immediately divorced him. And he's like, hmm, okay, good to know. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and then uh, fucking Olivia de Havilland just happens to drive by, not not you know right right around that time, um, with a, with a school. A, yep, a bus full of whippersnappers because she's a teacher, uh, and they're um, they are in Mexico for Fourth of July for some reason, which why not so, <laughs> so much to unpack. Yeah, they're, she she decided to take them on a field trip, which apparently people in um, in Azusa, California, just were like, yeah, sure, take the kids there over the border during the middle of the fucking, uh, it's wild. Um, but anyway, the they one of the kids throws a firecracker at him and they sort of have an altercation and then he sees her later after he hears the marriage thing and he's like, she looks lonely. I'm going to seduce her. We're going to get married. Bing, bam, boom. I'm going to have a, a, a visa. Um, so he, within the day, they are, they are married and, uh, and then she's they're just trying to get back over the border and but uh, maybe romance blossoms. I don't know. Um, it's uh, it's not the angle I would have liked to see the story from. I'll tell you that much. Um, 
I, I think it's got a real protagonist problem. And Charles Boyer's character is like a shitbird. So I don't know how, like, I don't want to root for him. And even though, spoiler, 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 they like end up together. I don't want that for her. She seems nice. Mm-hmm. I will say they do have more chemistry than, let's say, like Joan Fontaine. And um, I wish Olivia, I hope Olivia's listening. <laughs> Um, please, Olivia. <laughs> the invitation to come on the podcast is still out there, Olivia. Still like, out there. Please, please come on the podcast. How much time is left? Come on the pod. Um, <laughs> and Cary Grant. But, and uh, largely, I think that's her doing, though, oddly enough. Because, like, Boyer yeah. has, has chemistry with the, the dancer woman. Um, but may, but she, there's, I don't root for him. The only time I root for him is that she likes him so much that you're like, I mean, she'll be so sad if it doesn't happen. And then when they, they there's a portion of the film where they go on basically a road trip because he's trying to get a, away from an immigration officer um, who's like, you know, cracking down on false marriages to get visas. Um, and there's a moment where they are supposed to consummate their marriage, but he's starting to have feelings for her. And he's like, I still want her to be, you know, pure essentially by the time I leave her ass two minutes after I, you know, get over the border, which is nightmarish. But she's like, you can, Olivia de Havilland plays this as sort of this like woman who is ready to, to like have sex. So she like, her hair's down, she's laying back in the thing, like in the car. And he like feigns an injury to, (laughs) to avoid having to have sex with her. And he like, and she, there's this moment where she's like, you can see, he's like saying it. And she's, like, in the backseat, leaning over, uh, sort of whispering in his ear. And she's so, like, sexy in that moment. And there's that – you can see the disappointment on her face, but then you can see her, like, I don't know, promise promise something later, essentially, by, like, the way she, like, sort of rubs her, her cheek against his and then, like, kisses him. And it's, like, Olivia. I just – I don't know. You know, she's Melanie from <laughs> – from Gone with the Wind. I just don't see her as, you know, the sexual being. And it was like, I don't know, it was such a great little turn in the performance. And she's very good in it. It's just, I don't know, it's hard to sit through and sort of, because you know what's coming. I mean, anyone who's seen a Hollywood film basically knows how it's going to end. But I don't know, it just, I didn't want to root for it. And some of it works, but a lot of it is sort of the same kind of crap over and over and over again, you know, episodically. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I had never even heard of this one before. We to this podcast, which is always exciting, went into it not knowing what it was about. Mm-hmm. Um, it opens with this weird, like, little opening scene where it's like, We heard about this story because someone came right to our studio and told us this story. And, like, it's like a wild way to open the movie. But the framing um, device is nuts because it's just like Charles Borg walking into the Paramount lot and being like, I must speak to Daryl Zanuck or somebody. And then the, the actress. In the background is, um, oh, God, they don't even name her. I have to look it up again. But there's, like, he sees a scene going on in the background, and it's like, oh, it's not Carol Lombard. It's, I'll look it up. You you talk for a second. <laughs> yeah, so th- this movie I, is entertaining on some levels. I, like, like you said, I think Olivia de Havilland is wonderful and the main reason that it works. Like, she's really just excellent scene to scene um brings a lot to the character that really should have been like a like it, it, she's not given much to work with on the in the script but she makes a lot of it like like we were joking before her character doesn't make any sense really and it, it is the sort of thing where you're like 
why are you falling for him? Why are you even here? Why are these kids here? But like, she really makes it very compelling. Um, you know, it's Veronica it's the- Lake, by the way. Veronica Lake is uncredited in this film. Wild. <laughs> like, why not? Sure. <laughs> um, but no, so, you know, this movie, the whole immigration angle, it's it's very hard to watch in 2019 and not think of, like, the the optics of the whole thing. Kind, yeah. It's kind of, you know, that's what was really in my head for most of the movie. Like, mm-hmm. oh, God, like, we're painting this world where they're all, like, where, like, immigrants are all just, like, manipulative and, like, the the border inspector is, like, this, is, like, supposed to be seen as, like, this, like protector of american values and i'm like they don't know what they're doing but um but you know that was my like you you really have to view this one in the back in a vacuum i think and not think about what how it influences um like modern times and everything but um you know as like a strict like road romance minor thriller i found it compelling entertaining mainly because of olivia she really like you know she kills it i think she is the main reason the script is interesting. Like there's, there's some interesting ideas here, but you know, um, it's mainly her show and she's really, really good at it. Just like, you know, you gotta watch this one with goggles on basically. Watch all of these as goggles. It's the only way if you're going to watch them, don't watch them as really the advice. Um, this yeah, I don't hard know. To find, yeah. So like, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not going to say how we pro- both probably watched it, but boy, was it not easy. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't know. It, I will say, like, Olivia has that great moment in near the end-ish. Not not the, the dumb moment with the, the shocking thing, but the um, when when everything sort of falls apart and she, like, turns into a bad bitch all of a sudden when she's just been, like, uh, a nice teacher the whole time. It's like, oh, okay. All right. Where was this movie the whole time? You know? Truly. Truly. Honestly. Truly. Um... Anything else? Um, we'll talk about both of those films later, but uh, anything else about that one before we move on to the other couple nominees? Let's move on. That that, oh. that one, we're, we're good. <laughs> uh, let's do The Maltese Falcon, um, adapted from the novel of the same name. It's a crime thriller. Um, it's a Dashiell Hammett book. Uh, it stars Humphrey Bogart and uh, Mary Astor, who's also was in an, uh, is another like repeat person in this year. Um, and it's uh, basically he is a detective. Mary Astor comes in. Bridget O'Shaughnessy looking sort of concerned, like, oh, my sister. And she's been taken by this horrible man. Like, I need your help um, in the typical femme fatale fashion. Uh, and he sends his detective partner out to sort of help her stalk the guy, but then the partner ends up dead. And then they sort of have to figure out how did the person end up dead? And then it turns out, oh, the sister thing was just a lie. She's really here looking for um, this ancient artifact called the Maltese Falcon, um, the greatest MacGuffin of all time, realistically, mm-hmm. um, to uh, make some money off of it, basically. And she's got some cohorts played by Sidney Greenstreet um, and uh, what's his name? Peter Lorre, um, who go up against Humphrey Bogart, Bogart's character, Sam Spade. Um, and there's sort of a tortured romance between the two of them. And that's kind of all you can say without spoiling the whole thing, I suppose. Right? Yeah. And this is one that I think it's so easily accessible that like, yeah. it, and probably it's the one that it, 
maybe this suspicion feels the most modern and like easy to enjoy. So like, you know, if you're remotely interested, just go watch it. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. I mean, and I'm sure a lot of people will see it without being like big uh, movie fans. Cause like <clears throat> I saw it, um, I love the I had I was assigned the book in high school for my sophomore year and I really liked it. So I was like, well, I should see that movie. I bet you it's really interesting because I, I mean, you know, I I love that book. So I watched it then and I was kind of sort of um, lukewarm on it then. Like it wasn't bad. It just is. I don't know. I, I like it just wasn't it didn't quite work for me. Um, but rewatching it this time, I do still think it's a tad lifeless. But I think it's because the plot is so involved that they're there's almost no time to breathe and like hang out with the characters. That's what I liked about the book was the sort of dank character stuff and all this meaty, meaty like interaction that just sort of has to like really happen very quickly in this. Um, That said, I think Bogart, everybody's very good in it. Uh, Green street and uh, was nominated for supporting. So like, and Peter Lorre's pretty good. Um, Although he's just he doesn't have a ton to do, <laughs> Green Street just has more like menacing stuff to do. Um, but Bogey is very good, and Mary Astor's really excellent playing against type because she was basically the ingenue prior to this. For I mean, she'd been acting for like twenty years by this point. She was in silent pictures, so she'd been she had always played the innocent. So it was like a big deal for her to play the femme fatale. Um, and, and yeah, she's it's wonderful. And she's wonderful. Yeah, Mary Astor's great. I mean, like, I'm always happy to see Mary Astor because, like, I could not tell you a movie she's bad in, um, even if the movie is bad. Um, what are your thoughts, uh, Matt? Yeah, I actually, I'm, like, in complete agreement with you. So I um, I first saw this, you know, in high school. Um, and I remember liking it, but not quite loving it in the same way that the reputation suggested I would. And I kind of chalked it up in, like, my memory as being like, oh, I was young and like not like it was one of the first black and white movies I had watched. So it's like wow. I just chalked it up as like I was young and dumb. Who knows? But then um, I read the book in college for my 20th century American fiction course, I think is what it was called. And I read the novel and I liked the novel um, more than I remember liking the movie. And then we watched the movie again in class, which is not like the best way to watch a movie like this, but you know, it was like, mm-hmm. it was a rewatch. And again, I just like, it didn't really like work for me. I don't know why. And then watching it for this podcast, it like finally did kind of click in just that. I think the characters are so interesting and quirky and weird. And the movie's like not interested in exploring that. And I wish like the movie was like 30 to 40 minutes longer, honestly. And just like, let us live in this world where like you can, like you said, like you can do that with a book. Like it's like, even though I still think the book probably like goes a little, like rushes a little too long, too much through the plot. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the movie, it's so economically written where it just like plot point, plot point, plot point. And that works in terms of, like, keeping you entertained, but I'm, like, I want to know more about these characters. Like, at least give me, like, a, a franchise of them. Like, if this happened to – if this movie was out today, we'd have a whole cinematic universe. And it's, like – I'm, like, I love all these characters so much. I want to see more of them. They're, like it, – it, they're too interesting but given in too small doses. Yeah, and that would have made sense back then, too, because, I mean, Hammett had tons of these these films, realistically. and, mm. and Or these books. And, like, Sam Spade is a recurring person in his – over it, I think. Um, yeah, I agree. Like, it, it's only an hour and 40, and like, it absolutely could get 
you know, deserves 20 to 30 more minutes at the very least, you know, to -hmm. fill all that out. But you're right. I mean, the book is plot dense as well. But, you know, the book has more time (laughs) just because it's a book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, I mean, there is some, like, great stuff in it. I mean, so much of the, the, like, the Green Street stuff is so good and Mary Astor is, like, oh, so fucking good in it. Um, Like, what an actress. because Bridget is a tough role, sort of, because mm-hmm. you have to do so much in every scene realistically. But she just, I don't know, she makes it look so flawless. And especially for someone who literally played, like, played like matrons and, like, good girls for the rest of her career. It's, like, so interesting. Um, and she's great playing off Humphrey Bogart, who I think is a yes. good actor who, like... You know, it's hit or miss with having chemistry with women. For every Casablanca, there's, like, a bunch of other movies where I just think, oh, like, he, he does not know how to play this, like, a romantic figure or a sexual figure. And they have great chemistry in this one. That's a genuinely great point. Like, they are really – I mean, because they ha- they're supposed to have this sort of insane sexual desire for each other. And they, they absolutely do in this film in a way that he – you're absolutely right. He doesn't – do very well most of the time. I mean, Casablanca is a good example. We talked about In a Lonely Place, which is another good example. But those are, I mean, other than Bacall, those are like the only examples. You know? yeah. There are a lot of cases of just like, like, oh, ooh, okay. Like, yeah, yeah. Like other than his literal wife, like most of it's like, ooh, yikes, okay. Um, <laughs> sure. Sabrina, I think, we'll probably, I think we talked about that. About, I don't know if that's Best Picture nominee, but like, um, Sabrina, I think that movie like falls apart almost because I just don't buy them as a couple, basically. And it's just like, you know, he's is, he's great. That is a film, I tell you. That is a film. Oof, boy. Well, it is. Well, so I think it's a Best Picture nominee. We'll talk about it um, eventually. But, um, no, like, he's a great actor. He's just, I think, like, great at certain things. <laughs> yeah, he's just got a cruel chemistry that doesn't always work with people, really. Um, I don't, I, you know, I'm going to save those two religious pictures for last. Why don't we do Citizen Kane now? Ooh, okay. um, God, those yeah. last two. What a, <laughs> we're going out on a low note. <laughs> yeah, I really just don't want to talk about them yet. I hate them so much. Um, <laughs> Citizen Kane, loosely based on the life of William Randolph Hearst, which is important because he wanted this film buried. Um, he heard it was about him. He threatened to sue RKO, um, who was desperate for new talent. So they went out and found uh, Orson Welles to do, to make a film. And he was like, yeah, I'll come to Hollywood, whatever. Sure. Let me bring all my friends um, who are all in this film, by the way. Um, And he uh, removed all mention of RKO, not just of this picture, but RKO, the studio and any of their pictures for like a year after (laughs) or a year before, like as soon as he heard they were making the film um, and then threatened theaters like, from not being able to buy ad space or have ad space in in his papers if they played it. So a lot of theaters wouldn't play it. And I think all of that is important because it ties into why the film didn't win then and really never had a chance because not only did he do all that, but uh, Luella Parsons who wrote for his papers and is a big gossip writer from back in the day. I mean, it was her and Hedda Hopper. There was in competition and they, they, they wrote the opinions that, basically gave everyone else opinions essentially mm-hmm. um and luella parsons assured him over and over it wasn't about him and then the movie came out and it was or like other people saw the movie and were like uh bro it's about you and had a hopter eventually essentially scooped her and was like luella's been lying the whole time um which is just <laughs> fantastic <laughs> um uh 
And uh, yeah, so Luella and employed, and he, who who was he was pretty friendly with people in the industry. They both like started this campaign essentially. You know, don't let this fucking thing win a, a single award. Like, and uh, to to his credit, um, Wells also alienated a lot of people <laughs> while making, producing, and marketing this film. So, like, it's a combination of many things. But I think, given you know politics matter now in the Oscar race and you and I talk about them a lot. Um, but they certainly mattered back then when the industry was smaller and people had even more power. And I, I think citizen Kane not winning this year is truly a, uh, product of all of that sort of behind the scenes stuff that like, you wouldn't know if you're just like reading a list of movies and being like, the only thing I've heard of on this list is citizen Kane. How did it not win? You know, uh, th- this award um do you want to go into the uh, since you let you're a big fan of the film do you want to go into the the plot a little more or do we even need to i don't think we need to it's it's funny for a movie that is so like heavy on information it really is more of an experiential thing i think um to really sum it up in the loosest term possible um Oh, hold on. I'm sorry. I'm trying to get the get the letterbox up so I can have the names available. And I misspelled citizen. Um, it is about the death of a, the fictional um, Charles Foster Kane, a, um, a newspaper ma- magnate. And it, one of it, his dying word was Rosebud. And it basically chronicles a bunch of journalists digging through this man's life, trying to figure out what that word could have meant. Even if you've never seen the film, there's a really good chance you know what the word meant. <laughs> but um, mm-hmm. it just becomes this chronicle of this man's life, and um, and Told the, the pro- people who knew him in in sort of flashback mode as, as they're being interviewed by yes. each journalist. And just it becomes this exploration of like American myth making, I think, and like the way we obsess over and like obsess over these figures who control so much of our lives in many ways and um you know do, do you want to talk about this more or should i um, um no when, when did you first see it and how did you feel re-watching it yeah i um i first saw it in college at some point and i remember being like apprehensive about watching it because the discourse on this movie is fascinating where earlier this decade the like the narrative seemed to be like oh it's a really overrated movie and um because like it was like number one on or like high, like maybe number one or like high on imdb's top 250 and well, like it was also it voted just, by like the american film institute or someone like that that the greatest film of all time for a number of years and that's why i saw it in high school actually because i had i had heard that right and it was just like it was being <laughs> celebrated and it, it felt like the narrative had changed to like oh it's overrated and w- i watched it around that time and i remember being like oh like you know I don't want to be one of those people that just thinks it's overrated, but I'm also like genuinely worried about like, what if I don't like it? And I watch, cause I get like weirdly anxious about having a hot take on a movie that is like, ha- like universally adored. It's like, it's why a lot of the movies that are universally adored that I haven't, like I haven't watched them yet. But like, if I haven't seen them because already, because I'm just like, I don't want to get it wrong. But, um, I watched this back in, I think like 2013 and, um, it like blew me away. It was just so different from what I expected at the time. Like the opening shots of like that Tim Burton esque mansion, essentially of like, I was like, what is this movie going on? And it's so 
like electric and fascinating and explores a lot of themes I find interesting in general about journalism and um like like I said before like the idea of creating these melodramatic myths out of people who are powerful in our society and um it blew blew me away as um a co- like an early college student I hadn't returned to it since um and then watching it for this podcast again i just like i fell in love with it again i think i think it's such a phenomenal well-made movie i i i'm just like always so drawn to it in a way that i'm not always with the movies even ones that i really love like it just I, i'm constantly like <coughs> wanting to see what happens next it's a great mixture of like old school melodramatic theatricality and then also like very modern and like exciting editing and the technical skill that I find really interesting. It also, and if if you follow me on Twitter, you're going to be like, shut the fuck up, Matt. But like (laughs) watching it while watching succession is like one of is like really fascinating because you see how much like that show and the way it's about the myth, um, making myths out of incredibly wealthy people. Um, like how much it owes to citizen Kane. And then also like, Succession is like wink wink about the Murdoch family. So it's like it, there are like these really clear parallels of where these show like what these shows are doing thematically and where they like where they stand in society. So I just like this movie is very much made for me. It has a lot of themes that I love. And I just like I don't know. I I love it so much. <laughs> I, I realized from this podcast that I don't own it on Blu-ray. And even though I've made it a rule to myself to not buy any Blu-rays, because I, I need to save money. <laughs> I'm going to buy the Blu-ray, I think, with my um, Amazon rewards. So there we go. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think I hadn't seen... Oh, by the way, I didn't mention that this only one the uh, of the awards it was nominated for was only one original screenplay, which, again, speaks to like how good it is, but how strong the mm. anti-Wells and Citizen Kane faction was at the time. Um I saw it in high school because of that list came out and I, you know, I was a movie lover then and I think it was on sale at, you know, Costco or something. And uh, I picked it up and I was like, I watched it and and thought like, this is the greatest film in the world. Like, why? And I still don't like it very much. I don't know if I'd ever want to watch it again. Maybe, maybe I will. I mean, I think it's one of those films that maybe I'll someday learn to appreciate um, you know, I'm, I've always said I'm a big proponent of like rewatching things because you never know how thing how your opinion will change as you change. Um, but it it for me has always been a question of, you know, when you hear best greatest film of all time, what people are he- thinking, the average person is holistically, and that includes narrative. And for me, the narrative here is interesting in the way it's cut up, but. It's all such a technical display in terms of changing the narrative around from nonlinear flashing back in time and shit like that. But that I don't know if you ever really invest in the stories of what's going on. And maybe that's because we all know what Rosebud is. You know what I mean? Like, there's no there's no mystery to invest in. You just know that he was kind of a dick and all these people seem to hate him. Um, and then something happened at the end of his life, whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't, I think it, I think the reason it, so many people, there is that narrative that it, it's even possible to have that narrative of, well, it's not that good is because I think the narrative of the actual film is not as strong 
as it as I as it needs to be for to convince people of that. That said, technical merit and in terms of its like the way it's playing with normal forms of narrative, it is incredible. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. incredible. I mean, the deep focus on every shot is in, the the fact that it didn't win cinematography is a little ridiculous, frankly. Um, mm-hmm. I was thinking about that, like looking through the windows. I'm like, the fuck is this? Same fuck? with editing. Like, it's just like yeah, it's what like. The f- yeah, it should have won every technical award, truly. But again, it speaks to how negative people felt about Wells and everybody and, and the film at the time. Um, you know, Luella Parsons was powerful. Um, and it. And I mean, also, Orson Welles is a pretty terrible person. He, like. he was a douchebag from the beginning. But you have to, like, it's that thing of, I mean, we've talked about it with better directors. But, like, you know, I've said before, like, Peter Jackson, I'll always defend, even if he makes a piece of garbage like Hobbit again. Because he he just, he gave me, you know, Kate Winslet. How can you, no man who does that could ever be that bad. Uh, and, like, this is the same, the same kind of thing happens here with Wells. This is technically his first feature um, that he's like starring in or like he was a narrator in like short films and shit like that before. And one feature, but like, this is really his film debut and he brings his stable of actors that he used in theater with him. And that includes Joseph Cotton, who I've said many times I have much thirst for on this podcast and the great Agnes Moorhead, who is just like the greatest cinema bitch of all time. Realistically, like so good in this movie. (laughs) Imagine a world without Agnes Moorhead. Are you kidding me? This is her fucking, I mean, come on. But yeah, I, I, there's so much to like about the film um, or appreciate. I just don't know if there's a lot to like in it for me. Um, I just, it's, it's a sort of joyless film going experience for me or film watching experience. Not in the way that the rest of some of these, some of these films are, um, it just doesn't inspire a lot of passion in me in that in the way that like a film that I would say is my favorite is like Vertigo, which is uh, the, I think the th- first film that took over the um, number one spot for best film of all time. That one I have a lot of uh, there's I feel like that film feels so dense to me in more ways than one, like ideologically and blah, blah, blah. Um, whereas this, I feel like we just never quite explore all of these plot threads enough because there's so much going on. I mean, they're covering so many t- so many years. And they're covering so many subjects. A lot of subjects that we talk about now, like journalism and politics and, and cults of personality, all these things. But I don't know. It just, it's never sparked joy in me. So I threw it out. <laughs> <laughs> what a, I literally what a did. I, don't, I have all of my DVDs, but I don't know where that one is. And I think I just left it somewhere when I went to college. Um, no, and it's it's funny to go on to that like the, the list of best things of all time. I get so annoyed whenever the any list like that comes out, or whenever it's like you look at IMDb's top two fifty and like there's a headline about like this Marvel movie has already joined the top two fifty or something like that. It's like no other like you you can't name a favorite in other art mediums. Like it's like it's or like the like no one can say like this is definitively the best painting of all time. And as like <laughs> and as like movies as like cinema history goes on, like you know, back in like the the even like as late as like the eighties or whatever, it was like a relatively new medium. And now it's like we're having more movies come out than ever before. There are so many movies, and what is like important changes so much where I'm like, how would you ever pick like a like a, a best one? So it's like I can understand like voting for someone like Citizen Kane for that list because of like the technical merit, but it's like we gotta stop with this stupid fucking list. I so much prefer with like the sights and sounds poll of like 
just like let me see what movies directors like or like famous like influential people in film like and then like i'll move on with my life like i don't need to know like the like the aggregation of um this is we we serve like a thousand people and this is what the best movie according to them is it's like we don't we don't need it (laughs) and like there's no wrong answer unless you pick one of the next two movies we're going to talk about like then you're wrong but (laughs) there's no wrong answer otherwise yeah there are only a couple wrong answers and most of them are from 1941's oscar lineup um I don't have a. I don't, I don't think there's a definitively greatest painting of all time, but I will say the definitively greatest sculpture of all time is Cupid and Psyche by Canova. Um, anything else about Citizen Kane before we go on? <laughs> no, and now I'm going to have to Google that, that, that <laughs> when I get off my. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm just trolling everyone, um, but no, it is. It is the best sculpture of all time. Um, let's do the last two. Uh, the f- they're both religious pictures, um, e- both horrible in their propaganda, but one I think is a little worse. Let's start with the less worse one, uh, for me at least. I don't know how you feel. Sergeant York. Oh, interesting. Um, okay, interesting. <laughs> well, they're both bad movies. I just think one is less terrifying. Um, based Sergeant York is based on a real Tennessee farmer who became a conscientious objector because, uh, objector because of his uh, religious beliefs in World War One. His name is Alvin York. Um, he was a conscientious objector, but still had to join the army anyway, because they basically convince him like, well, God tells us to fend, and then he's like, yeah, you're, you're right. You're right. Um, and then he ends up like single-handedly catching like 130 Nazis somehow. Um, who knows? Um, but the scene, the, for me, the movie is. And that's basically the plot, by the way. I, that is the real life person, and then also what happens in the film. Um, it basically the whole thing leads up to him, leads up to him catching those those Nazis. Um, I really disliked how, it, like you 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 called one of the films earlier hokey, and this one is very hokey to me. Mm. Um, uh, partially for many reasons. Um, one of them is that York sold the rights to his, his story and required that Gary Cooper play him. And I think Gary Cooper is honestly very bad in this movie. Like to the point of embarrassing Um, his, like his, his, his accent is brutally bad. And he just seems like he's playing the guy as like a dunce, but also a hero. So it's very confusing. Mm -hmm. Um, But like Americans loved it. Then it was the highest grossing film of the year, which is the worst thing I've ever heard. Um, And it's, it's it's Hacksaw Ridge, you know, for, uh, for for you know fifty years prior. It's it's wild. Um, right. I find the religious like I mean I've said this before, but I I always find religious propaganda like this pretty disturbing. Um, but mostly this is just kind of corny and and hokey. And I I don't know. It's the core story is fine, but it just feels like a really shitty adaptation of like I like Hacksaw Ridge. I don't like this, for instance. And they're basic. They're essentially the same exact movie in two different wars yeah it's funny you mention the hokiness of it because um i was not a fan of this movie from the beginning it's very long and it um like it weighs like a full hour on just like his life before the war and that's not very interesting to be honest i don't understand um, how they there's so like half of the film is that and it should be the first 30 minutes tops tops yeah and i'm just like oh like this is not that interesting but then 
like it all came together for me why, why I was not working with this movie because I wanted to have like I wanted to think more than just like oh I just don't like it like I wanted like I'm like what about this movie is bothering me um and then in one of the last scenes or maybe even the last scene he Sergeant York goes to New York and is like being like awarded something by some political figure I don't remember and um he makes this like joke not he doesn't make a joke he says something about like wanting to ride a subway that is played for laughs because it's like oh lol he doesn't understand what the subway is how stupid and everything and it like that's when it all clicked for me of like oh like this movie is so like you know, it's trying so hard to be like a. This is a pure like American story. Like, aren't you inspired by this like story of patriotism? But really, I'm like, this movie is just mocking this person in a way. Like, they don't think they are. Like, they think they're like, it's an American movie. But it's like it's, it's turning him into this cartoon character to appeal to other people. And it's, I don't know. It's like there's no. There's nothing genuine about the movie. It is entirely it's it's propaganda, like you said, but it's propaganda made by people who don't think who don't really care about what the, about what they're what they're even saying. Which like rub me the wrong way twice because it's like not only do I think this movie has some dangerous messaging and just like silly um, exploration of relig- uh, religion and faith, but like it's also it's not even being genuine. It's just purely like doing this in like a almost like not not like a fetishy way but just in this way it's meant to like be boiled down to the most common denominator so like it could just exploit america's like favorite like favorite patriotism and everything like that like it's just it's it just it's a weird movie and also just not not very exciting or interesting and i just i find it very boring but you know yeah, and Cooper, I agree, is not good. <laughs> yeah. That's a, I mean, that's a brilliant read on it, frankly. I, I like, I think you're exactly right, and and, and that's, I it part it ties into why I think it's, I hate it less than the other one we're about to talk about, because it, it, it is so unconvincing and it's disdain for. Like, everybody is so cartoonish that it's, like, hard to take any of it seriously. And, like, clearly that worked for people, but, like, it's, it, it's in the same way that, like, you know, uh, shitty... Lifetime movies work for a big group of people is that they're easily consumable and they're meant to, you know, um, play to to the majority or, you know, a, a large audience's sort of like value systems. So, mm-hmm. of course, this was a high grossing film. It's it's I mean, inoffensive is the wrong word because it is offensive. But like <laughs> I, it's it's like mass produced Hollywood garbage, you know, and like. That works. We wouldn't still be making it if it didn't work. You know, it's funny it just, because, like you said, the plot is very sure. similar to Hacksaw Ridge, right. but um, like in terms of its place in the industry, it's almost closer to American Sniper and just the way it like made this insane amount of money and like like we I think we 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 don't talk enough about how American Sniper was like the highest grossing movie of 2014 and like nearly one best picture because of how popular it was and everything and like well it's especially a big deal because it came out so late in the year i mean obviously it made a lot of that money afterward you know they counted right. everything but still huge huge picture and that like, and it, yeah a bunch of hunger games came out that year and what's it called the galaxy garden of the galaxy i was like what is it pirates of the galaxy <laughs> Yeah, um, same thing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, James Gunn might subtweet me if he listens to this now because yeah. I go ahead, asshole. Honestly, anyway, anyway, sorry to go on a tangent, but um, no, um, 
it just it's funny because it really does like with very few exceptions i think war movies don't connect much anymore and the ones that do are these like i i hate i, I don't want to like I don't know. The propaganda, basically. Like, I don't. I don't want to even. I don't regret saying it. It's like you know, American Sniper, Lost, Last Survivor, or Lone Survivor, and like the ones that connect, with maybe the exception of Zero Dark Thirty, are like designed in this way to evoke, like tears and like inspiration in the audience. And this movie is doing that. It's that same playbook, basically. And yeah. Hacksaw Ridge too. Even though Hacksaw Ridge, I believe, is an Australian production. Um, so like, I don't know what their game was, but, but, um, you know, yeah, people love war pictures. I mean, mostly male movie watchers, like overwhelmingly, especially if they're older, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's propaganda, but not, not dangerous in the way that I think one foot in heaven is. Um, I I think we should just transition into one foot in heaven at this point. Uh, one foot in heaven is the other movie. It's Frederick March, my beloved Frederick March, which is so difficult. Um, and he, he is uh, he's a doctor um, at first. Well, he's studying to be a doctor, but all of a sudden he has this like a re- religious awakening, and he's like, I must, I simply must become a preacher of some kind. Um, and the girl he's about to marry, who comes from this nice family, their her dad, her parents are upset, but she's like, What's the Bible say about like I'll follow you wherever kind of bullshit? And I was like already pretty ready to check out but then but then the two rest, minutes yeah about two minutes in i was already like i'm i'm calling matt and we're not speaking ever again um but then um the, the wife is played by martha scott by the way um then they start they basically it's a very episodic film about them for the next like i don't know 30 40 years 30 years i guess um going from one parish shitty parish to another living lives of basically poverty, uh, some of it during the depression, um, because it's also a period piece. Um, And this, the, the, his faith trying to like basically pushing them along, you know, this constant belief, like, well, God will eventually provide and things always working out because of, you know, God. Um, And all of that's insipid and sort of (sighs) obnoxious propaganda. But the thing that really made me like, turn fully on it was the last last scene or two um because the last sort of parish he's at they he says to the wife like listen i'm done i'm finally going to give you the life of wonderful not you know living in a nice place that i've always promised that i always promised you and like that you deserve i'm gonna rebuild the parish and i'm gonna rebuild um the 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 parish house that we live in So he starts to do that. There's a pushback from these like uh, obnoxious choir people in in the in the church. Um, but then he eventually gets. I'm just spoiling the whole thing. You're never going to watch this. No, it's hard no one ever will. It's basically impossible to find at this point for good reason. It should be wiped off the face of the earth. Um, and the par- the parish gets built. And then he starts, he sort of fights for these fucking bells, uh, really expensive bells to be put in the parish. And listen, the church is beautiful. Don't get me wrong. Um, but he starts playing the bells and all of the, the entire town starts singing the hymn and comes to church. And it's this whole thing of like, I, it's the most upsetting religious propaganda I've ever seen. I was, it was, I found it chilling. And the way it's filmed honestly feels like 
like <laughs> like f- fucking Nazi propaganda films. It's so weird to like see this group of people converging because there's this whole narrative of like, you know, in it of like, well, we're, people aren't re- appreciating religion. Christianity is under attack. And there's like all of the shit that this film encapsulates in the in mid-century is part of what what created like a Christian theocracy in America after that point on, like truly, this is all part of it. And it was so heinous to watch that. I was like, they probably showed the shit out of this in churches and that's horrifying. And this is why we've like, this kind of fucking movie is why we live in where we live in today. Like for me, it was just so toxic. And I was, I think it's truly the worst of, I mean, actually I can't even say which is the worst of this batch of films, but this one chilled me to the goddamn bone. Um, how did you feel about it, Matt? <laughs> well, I, I don't think you're wrong on anything like with that one, like with that reading. It's, you know, it's it's the sort of movie, yeah, like you watch it today and you're like, oh, like this laid the groundwork for what really has, you know, poisoned a lot of our country, to be honest. Um, and um, it's tough. To, it's tough to watch on that level. But weirdly, comparing it to Sergeant York and even some of the other ones, to be honest, in this lineup, like there was something about it I found strangely hypnotic in a way that, like, you know, I was like, it, it was almost like, a, like I was like a "what the fuck is this guy" sort of thing. Like I watched it very much alone, yeah. but like I felt like I was constantly turning to different people, just being like, "Are you all seeing this?" Like it's like no, I, don't, I don't think I don't think you're wrong on that by any means. I mean, it is. I th- that's part of what's so like disturbing about it is that it is very easy to watch compared to a lot of these ones. Yeah, it's it's. I don't, there are only two story beats really, were, and I, one of them I don't even want to call a story beat. Like there's there's one arc where he brings his son really wants to go see a western. I think it was mm-hmm. um, like some sort of movie that was like objectionable, and yeah. um, he decides to go with the son, and he plans on like using it as like a basis for like a sermon on like the downfall of morality. But he ends up liking the movie a lot, and it's it's sort because of at the, at the time his church or whatever. It says you can't like part of being a good Christian is not going to the pic- the movie to the movie to the to the pictures because they're evil like they're just evil. <laughs> just they are, yeah. um, and, and they are. I mean, I, it's funny I, when I was watching um, Hold Back the Dawn and like it, there was all those like there's the racy stuff with the dancer and the stuff with Olivia. I was like, no wonder they said the movies were bad. <laughs> like I just like <laughs> I was like Frederick March was right. <laughs> No, yeah, points were made. But um, I found that arc weirdly charming. And then there's one scene near the end where two of his kids are talking about how hard it is to date because they're the pastor's kid. And I was like, give me a movie with that premise right now. I don't care what decade it's set in. Like, I find that I was like, I'm like, <laughs> I feel like a movie producer. I'm like, get me those kids and like, we're going to make a <laughs> spinoff right now. I was like smoking a cigar in this fantasy and everything. It was, I was so like, it was 1945. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what a brilliant idea for a movie. And I wish the movie was about that one scene, to be honest. Um, um, but no, yeah, the movie, I'm like, it's not great. Like, it's, it's the sort of thing. It really, it just blew my mind of in like, you know, I went to Catholic school as is yeah. off discussed and it's my, it's what I blame for all my um, shortcomings as a person. And, um, Rightfully so. Yeah. And, um, you know, I have like religious family members and everything. And like 
the way a pastor is involved in this community, I'm like, what world is this? Like, it feels made up. Like, it's like, I'm like, I'm sure this, that really was what a pastor's role was back in the forties and the thirties and everything. But I just watched it today and I'm like, Jesus, like I like growing up, like the priest or the pastor was like someone you saw for like an hour or a week. And then you did not think about them until the next week. And I'm like, God, imagine having to like have a moral center to your town. Like what a weird, frightening concept to be honest. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. That's my thought on on the film. Weird movie. No one will ever watch it again. Yeah. Like I, I we might have you pick the two blessed. best parts out of it. Absolutely. Those scenes are the best part. Yeah, I really am just like, you know, give me a movie about those kids. Like, I find that interesting. Yeah. Also, it really reminded me a lot of Seventh Heaven, which is not a good thing to be reminded oh. of. <laughs> I don't, my whole body rejected that. Um, <laughs> yikes. Uh, I, we should pick a best picture choices for this year. <laughs> um, it's really a competition for, like, two films. What What's your pick? <laughs> It's Citizen Kane. There's like the only other one I remotely entertained was Suspicion, but it's it's Citizen Kane. Yeah, I I really I mean, truly I think you, there is no other choice except for Citizen Kane, which is I truly shocking to me because when I came into this I really didn't think it was going to happen because I just am cold on that film. I mean I said I just said that you know ten minutes ago, um, and like, but it's most of these films are garbage. Two of them, like three, three films are good. The rest are put them in a blender and throw them in the sink. I just can't deal with them anymore. Um, yeah, let's move on to the other categories. We've got some big categories, um, some big Oscar history stuff. Uh, let's start with director. Uh, it's John John Ford won for How Green Was My Valley. Orson Welles was nominated for Citizen Kane. Alexander uh, Alexander Hall was nominated for. Um, here Comes Mr. Jordan, William Wyler for The Little Foxes. God, these are all such long titles. Howard <laughs> Hawks for Sergeant York. Um, who is your pick? Um, Orson Welles for Citizen Kane, like, no contest. It's just funny to me, you know, out of all the Best Director nominees from, like, this Best Picture category, they picked the ones who I think did, like, the least with the material. Like, it's like, <laughs> like truly, I don't even like Sergeant York, but at least Howard Hawks, like, is like doing something interesting here. Like, um, you can Mr. Jordan and little foxes just feel like plays. Like, it's like, okay, like sure. But I, I don't know, but I digress. Uh, yeah. Orson Welles. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. It's like, go off. I mean, like the whole category is filled with like huge names, but all, but like some of the worst films <laughs> possible. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> such a weird, like John, John Ford is great, but like, Ooh, that film. And yeah, it's gotta be citizen Kane, but you know, John Ford was writing a what? Well, a there was already the Orson Welles anti stuff, but John Ford had just won the year before for The Grapes of Wrath. So he's, I mean, he's very popular in the industry. Of course, he won. But again, you got to be fucking crazy not to give it to fucking Orson Welles. Um, we're gonna save the ladies to last because they are very important. Um, mm-hmm. The most important year possibly ever. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, the things that ripple out from this year. Um, uh, let's do actor. Uh, Gary Cooper won for Sergeant York. Cary Grant for Penny was nominated for Perry, Penny Serenade, which we both watched and is a completely wild film that I guess we have to talk about now, but we'll talk about it in a second. Uh, Walter Houston for All That Money Can Buy, sla- uh, which was also called The Devil and Daniel Webster, and that's how I tried to look for it on Letterboxd, and boy, was that a time. Um, <laughs> Robert Montgomery for Here Comes Mr. Jordan, and Orson Welles for Citizen Kane. Uh, 
you go ahead on this one. I'm going with Cary Grant for Penny Serenade. Um, right. I'll you talk, talk about, about what Penny Serenade is about and all that. Do I ever? Because um, it <laughs> relates it relates to why I'm going with him for this. Because okay. I nearly went. I will say really fast. Um, I nearly went with Walter Houston for All That Money Can Buy because I think that movie is really, really good. I, I enjoyed it a lot. It's on the Criterion channel for anybody. He but plays the devil. He does play the devil, yes. And it's like a weird, not quite horror movie, but with some creepy imagery. Um, and it's on Criterion, but on, as um, the devil and what – is, what is it? The devil and Daniel and, Webster. Yeah. And Daniel Webster, yes. And that's um, – if you want to – that movie's – I don't know what the fuck happened with those titles, but sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, so Penny Serenade is this melodrama about when it, it begins in media arrest and they're Cary Grant and um, his wife, played by um, Irene Dunn, are close to divorce. There's some tragedy in their lives. And it basically flashes back throughout this couple's lot, this couple's life together. Um, and they're... Um, their child yeah. who via the I, records I, that they bought so like yes, music yeah. always cues the memories essentially it's a nice framing device um i i won't spoil it because i think you should all watch it and actually it is very easy to watch because as i learned from wikipedia something got fucked up with the with the copyright status so it's like you can find it anywhere basically but um you can find like eight different versions of it versions of it just on amazon <laughs> Yeah, honestly, like it, it's I, someone, some intern got fired for not like, getting that copyright cleared. But um, no, I won't spoil it because I do think people should watch it. But yeah. um, it take like it, it follows this couple and this like truly wild shit that happens to them. And um, I don't, I just this movie really worked for me. It's very silly when you really like if you if i was to go into the plot and what happens to this couple i think it would sound unintentionally comedic because it just like the saddest things happen to them but um it really works in the moment and it has some genuinely thrilling scenes i think there's one moment where their daughter is in a school play that is like the most exciting thing like it's so well staged and i was like damn like why is this movie working so hard for me my one complaint is that it like the climax of the film is kind of brushed over very quickly, but it remains really compelling. And Cary Grant's an actor who I'm really like, I don't want to say hit or miss on because he's talented, but I just like his particular style of acting can rub me the wrong way if I don't love the movie. But I think his work here is sort of shockingly modern for what mm-hmm. his like it does like he had the scene that made me decide I'm going to give it to him is he does a monologue at one point. Um and I won't spoil the context because I think people should watch it. It, But, like, it feels like an acting clip from today. Like, it's, like, it's just – he doesn't go into hysterics or it's not really, like, um, the way melodrama was communicated in the 40s. It just feels so, like, timeless in a strange sense. And I found it so riveting. And I think it's one of – like, it's probably my favorite acting beat of his career. Like – I don't know some of his classics. I have to return to, but I was so impressed. I think I think he's really wonderful in, the, in that movie, and that movie's really fun in a weird yeah. way. It's sad, but it's fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I sort of uh, when I watched it, I was like, I, I did not prepare. I was not prepared to be fucking destroyed by this film in the way that it, I was because it is. It's like excellent melodrama, and I think the thing you're referring to about the last. Thing. I, I, I do think, I, I mean, I'm, I'm on, of two minds about it because you're right, the most dramatic thing that happens is happens off screen, but also 
it would. I think it might turn into tragedy porn. Uh, not that it already isn't. <laughs> um, I guess. Yeah. That, that's do you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it might be. It might go too far if it did that. But like the two of them are so good, and they have nice chemistry, and and it's the framing device is interesting, and and it moves along very quickly. But yeah, it just it's. I just thought, found it really enjoyable and fun to watch, in which is really a merit in this year of film. So, you know, I, I, it's it's I I'm surprised. Like this, if I could put it in best picture, I would kind of thing because it was just so oh, yeah, such absolutely. a. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, totally. Like it's the kind of thing that, like, of this batch of garbage, it's one of the only things I would rewatch willingly. You know. Yeah. Um, Same. With yeah, I oh, yeah. I feel like I kind of have to agree on that. Um, Cary Grant for for the win because as we talked about cooper is embarrassing i cannot believe he won that fucking award robert montgomery i wanted burned at the stake and i mean like walter houston is fine but like i don't know if he's the that feels like category fraud to me and i yeah he's I, not the lead <laughs> no dan it's not bad. even daniel webster is the lead it's that obnoxious shithead um jabez stone look um let's do supporting actor Donald Crisp won for um, How Green Was My Valley. Um, in a career sort of thing, he'd been working since the silence. He was he was uh, in he was like a big he had a big part in D.W. Griffith's Breath of a Nation. He directed uh, a bunch of films, including Buster Keaton's The Navigator. So he was I mean, he won because of, it was a career Oscar. Mm. Um, but he won over Walter Brennan uh, from Sergeant York. Charles Col- Charles Coburn uh, from The Devil and Miss Jones, James Gleason from Here Comes Mr. Jordan, and Sidney Greenstreet in The Maltese Falcon. Um, I, I'm, uh, these, this is a bad, this is bad. This is bad. Oh, it's one of the worst. Like, there's, there's a joke on, I forgot, um, I, think, I forgot which podcast it is, because it's a lot of Oscar podcasts, but how, like, supporting actor categories are always the worst. And, I mean, truly, it's, like, no one really good is here. <laughs> yeah. This is five years after they created the category, and I'm surprised they didn't get rid of it after this, because yikes, Cerrone. I think you have to give it to Sydney Greenstreet, and for me, at least, because it's the only... Um, I mean, I I like... I think Charles Coburn is good in The Devil and Miss Jones, and I, trust me, we're going to fucking talk about that movie later. But um, he is not the most interesting thing in it for me. He's fine. He's, he's funny. But... Um, Actually, you know what? Fuck it. I'll give it to Coburn. I, I would have given it to Green Street, but he's got Coburn is based. That's category fraud too. What the fuck? It absolutely. I was gonna say it's like it's absolutely category fraud in like the wildest way. <laughs> yeah, who's the fucking lead? That's stupid. You know what? I can't give it to him because it's category fraud. Sydney Green Street, congratulations! You've won an Oscar. <laughs> uh, yeah, I will go with Sydney Green Street as well. But I have a funny story in that um, I knew someone was nominated from. Um, here comes Mr. Jordan while watching Here Comes Mr. Jordan and I just assumed it was Claude Rams, Rams because he's so good and I was like I'm going to give it to him what a fun performance and then I was like wait um, James Gleason was nominated for this movie where he's he, he did the job he read the lines he did like he did what he was supposed to do but um, right, we already mentioned two other supporting actor nominees who could have been better what the fuck it's insane. I was just like, what the fuck is this? This nonsense. But, you know, I will say, Sydney Green Street is good. Like, it's a, he's he's very fun in that part. Um, and I don't know. Like, it's it's something, like, like I said, the best part of Multi Falcon for me is those characters. So he brings life to them. But, yeah, I mean, my God, what a, 
what a pathetic supporting actor category. <laughs> True garbage. True garbage. Um, let's get to possibly the most important category of the night. Uh, actress. Best actress. Um, actually, what a start, lineup. <laughs> should we start with supporting actress first and then get into actress? What are your thoughts? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Okay, we're going to do that. <laughs> Ooh, the suspense. Um, supporting actress, Mary Astor won for The Great Lie, which is uh, a film that I <laughs> I have not recovered from and never, frankly, will. Of the films that are impossible to watch in the same way that they were then, um, now, this is number one for me. Because Mary Astor is the villain in this film, but if you remade this film today, she would be the hero and it would be a horror movie, not a tender romance as it is here um slash sort of romantic thriller let's say that um it is horrifying i'll do a very quick synopsis synopsis uh betty davis plays the good girl which is already a problem um she is interested in a man who well uh, it starts with mary astor and um, is it Charles Boyer again? No, it's not Charles Boyer, Boyer again. God, imagine. Just like, <laughs> just keeps... It just feels like something he would play. It's, it's George, George Brent. Brent. Yeah, it's yeah. George Brent. Um, George Brent and Mary Astor, after a night of drunken debauchery, they end up you know, getting a quickie marriage. She is a famous concert pianist. He is, I guess, an, a pilot or some bullshit. Who gives a fuck? He's the worst. Um, <laughs> they get married, and then... He immediately regrets it and flies off to the fucking farm town he grew up in where Betty Davis is sulking because she's heard he's gotten married. Um, and he's like, I got married. How do you feel about it? And she's like, it fucking sucks. We were supposed to get married. So he's like, you know what? It's okay because uh, we actually didn't get married. It, like, not, it's not legal. So if you want to like do this, let's do this. So they do that. Um, poor Mary Astor is left out in the cold, even though she is for some, in, for some reason in love with George Brent's character, even though he's true garbage. Um, but then he goes away to war, uh, because it's the war and he's a pilot for some reason. And I don't know, Betty Davis wants him to have a job. Who cares? I'm not even making this up. Like, that's just so goddamn, I'm not just being glib. That's also what the film is. <laughs> like, then he goes to war and he disappears and they're like, oh no, he's dead. And then Mary Astor's like, surprise, bitch, I'm pregnant. Where's my, where's, where is he? And he, she's like, oh, he, and Betty Davis is like, oh, he's gone now. Um, but I want a piece. I still want to have a piece of the man I love. Let me adopt your illegitimate baby. And Mary Astor's like, fine. I don't give a shit. I just care about my career. It was really just a way to keep him around. Um, and then they live in a house together and Betty Davis is awful to her. Just basically spewing just pure misogyny and like, like patriarchal bullshit about motherhood. And Mary Astor is like, will you stop hounding me? You goddamn bitch. And I'm like, yes, killer. <laughs> and it doesn't happen. Uh, and then surprise, surprise, what's his face comes back. And then there's, you know, some drama about the baby. Cause they're like, you know, Mary Astor wants a baby back. And they're like, no, this is our baby. Now you're not, you're not even fit to be a mother. Cause you have a job. Um, that's Jesus. basically it. Is that not the fucking plot, though? No, yeah, this movie, like, watching it is truly surreal. It it has aged poorly in a way that the other movies that we've talked about haven't, because, like, they've all aged poorly. But this one is, like, you could make this movie, like, today, but it would be, like you said, like, a horror movie. It's, it's like Gone Girl, but, like, as if Gone Girl... <laughs> was supposed to be like the portrait of like a healthy relationship. Like yeah, it's like the whole time you're rooting for these sociopath monsters who are just 
awful and it doesn't make any sense but mary astor is fucking iconic in the fucking movie the last line of the film is a joke about domestic violence and i was just like what the fuck is this movie like it's it is an insane insane film that is not even really fun like you know sometimes you can get these insane movies like blossoms in the dust where it's just like it's like i have this i find this weirdly fun on some level this movie i was just like oh no <laughs> like watching it the whole time like my god and it's just truly it's like the more i watch film from any decade i'm like i don't think i ever want to get married i'm like i think i think i'm good <laughs> like it seems I like a toxic I definitely system. don't. And I don't want to give up my my the baby I don't want anyway because I to Betty Davis, especially when it's gonna interfere with my brilliant piano playing career. Thank you very much. <laughs> God. But Mary Esther, she's good in the movie. Um she She's great. Every, every time she says something mean to Betty Davis, I'm like, yeah, get her. Because Betty <laughs> Davis is playing the worst woman in the in the history of the world. And also, like, it's funny that like realistically the two of them have switched their usual roles i mean betty always played the bitch and mary always played the good girl and like honestly mary astor out betty's betty in this like betty does not even register to me as an actress in this film she's just like so not interesting to me like because that of that character that i was like mary astor like is fucking doing death drops over here and like i don't even notice (laughs) (laughs) charlie hyde's over there aka betty davis (laughs) And that was for the Drag Race fans <laughs> in the crowd. Just no. Betty. <laughs> no, what a it's it's a bad movie. And like, uh, go on with the rest of the, with the rest of the nominees that we could talk about. Okay, <laughs> I just ha- I mean I couldn't hold contain. No, we had to we had to go into it. <laughs> sorry so mary astor uh sarah all good for um al green was my valley patricia collinger uh for the little foxes Teresa wright for the little foxes and margaret wikerly for sergeant york um yeah uh literally mary astor is the only woman i will acknowledge in this group although collinger and wright are very good in that film i just don't I just don't have as much time for it as I do Mary Astor this year. She deserved it. She put, she gave two iconic bitch performances in the same year. How could you not? Yeah, I was going to go with Teresa Wright going into this recording, but I'll go with Astor. It's just like, she really is like the only reason. What garbage. Like, if I were Mary Astor, I would go home and like, cross out the great lie and whatever <laughs> fucking movie you want. Like, just like, like it, it's, she. Yeah. I, I feel like it, it was absolutely a, um, a double win for Maltese Falcon and, and the great lie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Why wasn't she, she could have pulled off a supporting actress nomination for Maltese Falcon. Like that would have been like minor category for her, but not too bad. Like Clearly they were still figuring out what the hell a supporting role was. I mean, obviously my God, uh, well, for the actors, at least. The actresses are all correctly in their places. Um, all right, let's talk about actress. Uh, this is the category that launches a thousand um, lawsuits, specifically against Ryan Murphy <laughs> for saying Olivia Evelyn allegedly called Joe Von Date a bitch. Um, and because they, this is one of the reasons they fought so much. Um, the winner was Joan Fontaine for Suspicion. Uh, Betty Davis was also nominated for The Little Foxes. And Olivia de Havilland was nominated for Hold Back the Dawn. 
uh, Greg Arson for Blossoms in the Dust, and Barbara Stanwyck for Ball of Fire, which is just a Snow White modern retelling with Gary Cooper in a film he's much better in. Stanwyck is great in it. Um, yeah. Uh, oh, she's also in The Lady Eve this year, which is wild that she didn't get nominated for that. Um, Matt, what are your who who which which Fontaine de Havilland do you choose? <laughs> I mean, you can choose Davis too. <laughs> I'm gonna throw everyone off their off their chairs with this. I'm going with Barbara Stanwyck, actually. <laughs> um, first of all, I will just say what a category! Like truly, it's like like. W- God, like, what a gift to the gays. Like, Greer Garson is not even, like, I don't even like that movie, but she's great. Like, it's like, fuck, like, five great performances. Um, The category is actually called Legends Only this year. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Best Actress All-Star Edition. Um, (laughs) um, So my thinking with giving it to Barbara Stanwyck is purely just, like, Joan Montaigne's great. Olivia de Havilland's great. Um... And even, like, you know, Betty Davis is great, even though I think it's not one of her best performances. But um, I – the way I see it is those three films, Suspicion, Little Foxes, and Hold Back the Dawn, had interesting enough – or, like, compelling enough scripts where there was a world where they could work with anybody in those parts, I think. Like, they – all three actresses did a great job, but – with like you said, like Ball of Fire is Snow White and the Seven Doors, but with like in like a college town and also a jazz club with like gangsters involved, and it is the silliest fucking premise. And when I was watching it, I was like, "What is this movie <laughs> like about?" And then whoever wrote it was on true cocaine when they wrote it. It's so wild. absolutely, but it only works like because of Barbara Stanwyck, it is the sort of thing like I cannot imagine this movie if like anyone else was in that part it would have been a disaster and she's just so perfect in it and makes the movie really fun in a strange way like as insane as it was and as much as I was like this movie's dumb right like I was like I was having a great time and she's so much fun so that's why I'm just I'm going with her it's when you have legends only you gotta you gotta think of something interesting <laughs> absolutely yeah I, I actually agree I was kidding about I mean I don't think I, I truly don't think Joan or Olivia really deserved it this year because especially when you got Barbara Stanwyck in that in that um category and you're right it's the only film that like is truly she's indispensable all of those other women could have been played by someone else Barbara Stanwyck is so good in it and she like she sings in it it's not like she's mm-hmm. known for being a singer but you know she does the dance she puts on the the, the bangs and she goes for it and she has that fabulous outfit that she like Mm-hmm. is walking around that library in with Gary Cooper and they have really fun chemistry. I think because they were like, I think they were actually dating at the time or something like that. But like, you know, it's, it's, although there's I, whatever, we don't have to go on that, but like, like the two of them are fucking fabulous in that film. And like, it's a weird premise, but it totally works in large part because she plays this like, you know, bad girl who kind of maybe has to fall in love with a dope who was just interested in the English language. <laughs> it's just one of like the strangest movies, but I find the, pre- like, I think because of her, like I found the premise so charming in a weird way. Like, it's yeah. like if, if you had told, I was so happy. I did not read about the film before starting it mm-hmm. because like, if someone had told me it's the purpose, I'd be like, what the fuck do I have to watch for this podcast? Like, <laughs> like what is this? And then I I watched it and I just like, damn, like this is a great, great movie. Oh, I, I really enjoyed it. 
Yeah. No, I agree. I thought it was really charming. And like, again, at this in this year, anything that's not utter garbage and dangerous messaging is like is a delight. But it's, this this film is actually pretty delightful. I mean, it's it's bizarre, but it's like such weird fun. I, I, it's worth seeing. I think uh, I had to rent it from the library, but I, I'm sure yeah, it's streaming yeah. other places. Hopefully, anyway. Of all the things that are available in this year this should absolutely be available most again uh, most of them should be buried um are we matched on every category for this for this year we oh shit i think we i think we are yeah wow what a year (laughs) truly it's like the options are so slim where we just have the option the the only winner is clear yeah um well let's do our 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 extra segment or the, this, the extra category essentially. And usually we do a a normal category, but this year we kind of picked a a weird one. That's mostly based around a single film. Um, A special award was given to Walt Disney, William Garrity, John N. A. Hawkins um, and RCA manufacturing for their outstanding contribution to the advancement of the use of sound in motion pictures uh, through the movie Fantasia, which uh, it technically opens in 1940, but most people did not, actually see it until 1941 like the big release the because there was a roadshow uh version as well and basically everybody saw it in 1941 so it was technically a 1941 movie um but yeah it uh it won a special award for that it also won um uh the conductor won a special award for the visual like advancing the visualization of music and then disney won the thought irving thalberg for basically this film which is all very funny because the film was a total bomb but we've all seen fantasia um, which, I mean, I don't feel like I don't have to describe what it is because there was also Fantasia 2000 for the young kids. Um, <laughs> but it's a bunch of cartoons that render, um, into like imagery, um, classical music. Uh, Matt, uh, why don't you talk about, uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe your overall experience with Fantasia slash what's your favorite part of it? Yeah. So Fantasia, background even before Fantasia, just like. I had a family friend growing up, my mom's best friend from high school, who just, like, loved animated movies and, like, bought us, my brother and I, like, every Disney animated movie, basically, up until, like, the mid, like, the late 90s, basically. So I had, like, this whole shelf of just, like, Disney animated movies. And Fantasia was one that I remember watching, like, as, like, a little kid and being horrified by. Like, I truly thought it was, like, the scariest thing. And also, like, Mm. I was simultaneously, like, bored but also like truly terrified and it was like the, it was odd i've only seen it, like a handful of times and most of the times were as a kid but i do i saw it at some point in like high school i forgot why and um oh actually no i do remember why even i don't remember if it was high school or college now there was that movie um with nicholas cage and jay Baruchel um that was a gritty update on oh, the sorcerer's apprentice the sorcerer's apprentice yes yes and oh. um i was like weirdly hyped for that movie i thought the trailer was really good so oh. i remember watching fantasia before that came out i think i was still in high school when that movie came out and um so spoiler alert the sorcerer's apprentice was not good but it did give me an appreciation at least for the um the animated film on some level because i watched it then in terms of a favorite segment i will like the, the the sorcerer's apprentice is a very good segment i think um it stands as like this really interesting short like short film and it's compelling and i think everybody 
kind of know, kind of likes it. So I don't know. Yeah. But I mean, that last, I forgot what the segment's called. The last one with like the demon guy is terrifying. But, that um, yes, but yeah. it's effective. So, you know, but yeah, Torture's Frontens, cute animated segment that I like a lot. Yeah. I am still recovering emotionally from the fact that you rewatched and appre- learned to appreciate Fantasia from uh, The Sorcerer's Apprentice, the live action film. That is <laughs> the most unbelievable thing I've ever heard. I, I have to confirm that this is Matt Taylor on the phone. This is so shocking. Um, <laughs> I, I was a different person in high school. It's, let me it's tell fine. you. I just, I just, we all change, but I just didn't know how much. Um, <laughs> uh, wow. Uh, I, I was still in the closet. It was a different world. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. But I, I will say you're right about watching it as a kid. There it is. There's some of these, some of these segments are very scary. There's the, the rights of spring with the dinosaurs and shit. That's like, ugh. like that genuinely <laughs> terrifying. And like night on ball mountain is fucked up. It's bizarrely erotic because well, they erase it and all the, um, when they take it out of the vault now, but um, there's a lot of tits and stuff in the original uh, version. Because it's, it's like, you know, they're demons. So there's, like, boobs and there's things flying around. I mean, there's no, like, dick out there or anything. But, like, imagine. can you imagine? <laughs> like, but there's, but there is there's this odd erotic um, charge to that segment. Especially, you know, the, 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 the demon on top of the mountain is terrifying. Or on top of the church or whatever that is. He's terrifying. And he's, like, shirtless and all this... There's this weird iconography all over the thing. And there's... The demons sort of have this, like, Bacchanalian dance sex party at some point. So, like, it's all in there. Um, This is all to say that is obviously my favorite one and has always been my favorite (laughs) one. So, but is that... Does that surprise anyone, really? Um, But, yeah, all of the segments are good. There There are a couple... There's maybe, like, one or two bad ones, but, like... You know the one with the flowers and the the like dancing animals. That shit's fun too. I love that. Um, they're all fun. I mean, it's mostly good. That's why Disney two thousand was was a fucking train wreck because it was not as fun. Um, I don't think I've seen Fantasia two thousand actually. Um, yeah, yeah. I definitely, I definitely have it now. But um, just wise. you would remember it's it was like a big deal because people love Fantasia at that point because it had sort of had a resurgence from being a big flop. But yeah, it's. I, it's not. There's maybe one or two segments in it worth watching, but for most part, it's not very good. And this is mostly much better. I do wish I had an original cut before they took all of the boobs out of Night, Night on Bald Mountain, but I don't know. It's, it's got to be online somewhere. Yeah, it is. I just I wish I like could have converted that tape or something because I hate that that like of all the things to erase, you know. Yeah. God, chill out. Um, the whole thing's a problem. Um, all right, let's move on to our final segment for your consideration. Um. So many things. Uh, you, you, how about you go first? Yeah, I have only one movie I really want to highlight, but I want to highlight it in the boldest shade <laughs> possible. Um, and that is A Woman's Face. The um, It is a life-changing film, <laughs> to, to say the least. This movie was on Criterion back in, like, over the summer, I think, and I watched it. And it was part of the uh, George Cukor thing. Yes, and it blew my mind in a way that just like I I I need them to release it on Blu-ray because I want like to just own it and be able to watch it whenever I want because it's not on Criterion anymore and it's deeply deeply troubling. But this film stars the beloved Joan Crawford as <laughs> a um a female criminal 
who, um, which I love that that's how she described on the letterbox summary. It's like a female criminal who manages to use plastic surgery to get rid of this scar on her face and essentially start her new life. And the way she, her, her crime past is coming back to haunt her as she go, goes about manipulating her way. Um, through, I don't want to spoil the twist because I think that it, like, there's not a plot twist per se, but it just like, this movie goes places that I did not yeah. expect, and I yeah. was just so thrown by it. But it it is truly everything I love about like classic Hollywood melodrama, like emotions communicated in like the most over the top way, like epic um, love that really sees more like lust, but you, you'll let it be coded as love because they're going to get away <laughs> with being too overly sexual. Um, incredible fashion. She wears multiple. She has this like these hats that are that meant to hide. That fucking hat is. I remember I watched it with a friend uh, on a big screen for the first time. Not, not like you know, like a year before you did. And I, I was like, I, I like I said in the middle of the movie when that that moment happens, I was like, that hat is the is an icon. I mean, like truly an icon. Ice streams. <laughs> I cannot believe no one has done it on Drag Race yet. It is just <gasps> like. <laughs> it's such a such a look and um i don't know i just i find this movie so entertaining in like a compulsive way that is just like again like i am so i don't have the time to rewatch it right now because we're doing this podcast and i want to watch new things but let me tell you like i'm so upset it's not available to rewatch right now because i just all i keep thinking about is rewatching it i watched it this year and honestly it's like the movie that has stuck with me the most. Like, I just, I think it's, it's so good. And Joan Crawford is excellent in it. Like, I think Mildred Pierce is her best performance and like kind of impossible to beat for various reasons, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, when we get to that movie um, in this miniseries or in this series. But um, she's incredible in this movie. So, so good. And I, I, I love this movie so much. Yeah, it is. I mean, I it's funny that you said it because she, I was going to say her as as best actress, like as a oh, possible yeah. replacement for some of these people. Um, even I mean, uh, even including the the Fontaine Fontaine and and De Havilland, who I both love, but like I, I don't know, like both of those roles are kind of give or take for me, especially in comparison to like. A Joan Crawford in A Woman's Face, and um, I'm going to jump into the other one mm-hmm. that I have, which really should be a surprise to no one because I've said this already. Why the hell is Jean Arthur in the goddamn Best Actress category? She's not. She's definitely the lead of um, of uh, not the Great Lie, uh, the Devil, not the Devil. God, it's <laughs> the Devil <laughs> and Miss Jones. Yes, it's yes, the devil. that's it. Yeah, yeah it's like <laughs> they're all the same fucking name uh, in the Devil and Miss Jones. It's again, she gives a great performance as someone who literally convinces a uh, horrible tycoon who owns, who forgets that he owns a shopping center or like a, it's, I guess it's a mall. I don't know what you would call it, a, a store, a department store. And then because the workers revolt, he decides to like go under, basically go undercover boss. Um, and that's what I was thinking too. It's undercover boss. It's it absolutely like... it, no, it's truly undercover boss. So he goes undercover boss and he like wants to find the leaders of the um the 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 people who are trying to start the union and he meets Gene Arthur who's really nice to him and then he finds out that her boyfriend is the one who is leading the 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 charge and then 
she convinces him to become not a horrible capitalist through that performance. And I was like, yes, I buy it. I agree. Jean Arthur is the best. And I, I get, I, she didn't have an award where the, she is the best person who ever played a like gal Friday kind of mm-hmm. role. Why the fuck did they never nominate her for one a or B just like never give her a goddamn award. Like, I'm sorry. Goodbye, Greer Garson. Get out of here. Put Gene Arthur in there. And you know what? If if uh, if you put Joan and and Gene Arthur instead of De Havilland or Fontaine, maybe those two would have still been talking before Joni died. That's all. Think of what you all did. Yeah, <laughs> the Academy. <laughs> the the This is their fault for not giving Joan and Gene everything they deserve because they both deserved nominations this year i mean they're both brilliant in, in their films like the devil in miss jones is not a great film but she's excellent mm. in it when has she been bad find me an example we haven't <laughs> run across it yet um yeah i don't know i just cannot believe that gene arthur was again ignored in this way and joan in that fucking hat. That hat should have been nominated for Best Supporting Actress, frankly. Like, Truly. It's, she, the hat's better than most of those the people. Have the hat replace all five of the Best Supporting Actors. Like, agreed. we don't know the hat's gender identity. Like, who knows? Right. <laughs> this is a good point. I could be misgendering the hat. It should probably be an actor. Who knows? I don't know. Either way, <laughs> the it's hat is better than any of the five supporting actors, and that's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> oh, justice for Gene Arthur and Joan Crawford. Um... All right, that's uh, 1941. This is a long one, but hey, there's 10 garbage films and we needed to shit on all of them. Um, you, you all spent two hours listening. We spent like 15 hours, 16 hours on these fucking movies. <laughs> oh my God. We spent so much time on these films. I, I, like it truly is some of the worst film watching experience. I almost hated film at the end of it. I was, I truly was like, this is the end of me and movies. Like I can't do this anymore. I need to quit. Like I can't, I'm going to burn my television. Um, thank God we got through it. Unfortunately, next year is not very good either. <laughs> Um, and the films are eight times as long. I'm not joking. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's next, higher highs, I think. But <laughs> Yeah, there, no, there are. There are more. I think, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure we'll end up, I don't actually don't know. But yeah, there, this, there are higher highs for sure. Um, next year we're doing is 1963. Tom Jones is the winner. It's the year of the my dreaded Cleopatra, um, which I don't think is as bad as most of these films, honestly, shockingly. Um I don't know. Maybe who knows? Maybe that's not true. But yeah, 1963 is our next year. Um, thank you for watching some of these films, people, because I feel like we're going to lose all of our audience after these two years. It's a, it's a brutal double whammy. I mean, we almost lost our will to live watching these films, I think. So um, look out for that next week. Um, uh, I'm sure we'll have uh, we're recording these in advance, but I'm sure we'll have. Uh, other episodes in between these episodes about uh, the current Oscar race. So check those out. Um, our, our way too early Oscar podcast. Um, I'm at Marissa Carpico everywhere. Matt Taylor. What about you? I'm at Matt and I'm at one. Okay. All right. Um, and that's it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Sorry you had to watch these. <laughs>